0: Ladies and gentlemen, our next event of the evening is a one-fall match with a 60-minute time limit. What I'd like to have right now. I'd like to have right now. what I'd like to have right now.
1: What I'd like to have right now. What I'd like to have right now. What I'd like to have right now. Got some like right like right music. This is where the big boys play, huh? This is where the big boys play. This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com. The only place to be in your pop culture world.
2: Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to a brand new edition of Where the Big Boys Play. And uh, I'm here as ever with Chad. How are you doing, Chad? Doing good today, Parv. And, uh, well the return of a guest uh, on oh Why the Big Boys Play. Uh, is this your podcast debut? It's Robert, aka the brain follower from the PWO board. How are you doing, uh, Robert?
3: Doing well, thank you.
2: <laughs> and this has been a long time coming, right? I think you first sent the message saying you're interested in doing the show. When was it? 2000 and. 13 or something
3: (laughs) yeah i think it's been about two or three years i uh, i recall being so uh so thrilled and then you know immediately going why did no one want to do halloween havoc 92 having never seen it and then i watched it that day and (laughs) well i won't say anything more
2: yes um so yeah we're back on the road chad uh with halloween havoc anything you want to say before we get going here
0: i don't think so. Kinda, I guess we're transitioning back to business as usual, uh, probably across the feed. So this will kind of kick that off in the uh, post wake of the greatest wrestler ever.
2: Greatest wrestler? What? I don't even know what you're talking about. So let's <laughs> <laughs> let's uh, let's get on to well, it.
0: All the tears have been wiped away, and now it's time to get.
2: Yeah. I I I am gonna get Robert a little bit later on in the show just to tease this. To do a Missy Hyatt Trish comparison. <laughs> Easy. Oh, oh, no. <laughs> <God>. <laughs> uh, all right. So before we get into this show, um, we th- th- let's do the observers.
1: It's time for the Wrestling Observer Extra, Wrestling Observer Extra. with Dave Meltzer.
2: There are quite a lot uh, between the, the the Clash Twenty and this show because it, uh, I don't know what, what was the date on the Halloween happened close to oh, Halloween.
0: So we're only about a month away, but I guess there was probably like four or five issues.
2: Yeah, well it was it was early September and late October, right? Uh
0: there we go.
2: So yeah. that's why that's why there's such a big gap here. And um we're in one of those little uh, areas where Meltzer's got a huge amount to say about WCW and the state of the business and so on. So I'm just gonna get into this. So this is September the seventh, nineteen ninety two. And um, he's got this article: Dollars, Cents, and Reality: The True State of WCW. Okay, so he's he's going through he's going through um, the history of WCW from the when Turner bought it in November of 1988. Okay, uh, when they purchased Crockett Promotions, and um, you know he said that basically it had a substantial national following, but the company was deeply in debt had several positive aspects and a lot of potential, but the reality was that while it had some popularity, it didn't have nearly enough of one to be profitable in the, in the manner that it was being run. And you and I, Chad, have been through the ins and outs of uh, Crockett Finances or in the bars on this show, right?
0: Oh, yeah. It could, could be a uh, out-of-fell-a-business class in college, <laughs> looking at the, uh, just their whole… You know, the whole history
2: of the company. So, at that point, when TBS took over, the man in charge was Jack Petrick, And he had to make a, he had a choice to make. He could either go all the way in an attempt to make the company, now called World Championship Wrestling, the top wrestling uh, company in the country. To do that, it would require going to war and winning. That would take spending an incredible amount of money. Wars aren't won without bullets competition, the World Wrestling Federation, had an enormous head start in terms of t- television clearances, name identity of both the product and the top stars, merchandising and arena contracts. The WWF was a huge organisation employing more than 200 fr- front office employees, 75 wrestlers, blah, blah, blah. About f- f- 50 full-time wrestlers in two touring groups and about 450 to 500 shows a year. So if it came to an all-out spending war between Ted Turner and Vince McMahon, Vince couldn't possibly win, um, because obviously Ted Turner's dead Turner, but all things being equal, if it came to anything but a spending war, McMahon had a huge advantage, much of it from being the incumbent and the rest of it because he knew and understood his business. So, I mean, I guess we know all of this stuff, right? Um, so, uh, let's just cut, let's just be cut to where he's going here. Um, virtually every small return had died in 1988, um, and blah blah blah. The decision was made to produce a lower budget product than the WWF. This was Jack Petrick's choice, okay, with less employees, less big name wrestlers, less big name arenas, cheaper looking television, with poorer clearances and exposure. The product would be different from Titan, but as it turned out, the person he chose to put in charge, Jim Hurd, had no real concept of what different was, (laughs) other than he changed his idea about it or had to convince him to change his ideas about what different was on a regular basis, okay? And uh, we've seen some of that on this show as well, chair ding-dongs and so on. Sure. Um, so, let's um, I, I keep on going with this. Uh, where are you, Where is Meltzer going? Well, the day of reckoning is here. Despite some people rejoicing when Bill Watts was hired to take control of WCW, Watts wasn't brought in to take on Titan Sports only with words which have little meaning. They wanted him to cut back on the bullets. He was brought in to cut expenses. WCW's problem under the former management was that they wanted to challenge for the top spot or become major league, but lacked the understanding of wrestling history in this country. In almost all cases, going back uh, to the beginning of time in the US, few cities have supported two promotions over the long haul. Uh, There have been many promotional wars in different cities and territories, but ultimately there was a winner and a loser, not a peaceful or sometimes not peaceful coexistence. If there is one aspect of the success of wrestling in Japan and even Mexico that can't be translated into our culture, it is the ability of many promotions to survive for the long haul in opposition to one another without the fans giving up on one because they came to the conclusion that it wasn't major league um, so it all and don't forget, fans, this is before the, uh, the, the so-called Monday Night Wars here. And I'm just going to, like, Robert, you were a fan in 1992, I take it. What was your perception of these two companies at this time?
3: I had almost no – I didn't get cable until 1993. Mm. And I grew up in Massachusetts. So we didn't have WCW. The only thing I knew about it was uh, my closest neighbor – friend who was also a big wrestling fan. Uh, They had it. And his dad was somewhat antisocial so we were never actually invited over to go watch it. But he would keep me informed of everything that was going on in WCW. And he would tell me how, you know, it was sort of the very sort of, maybe he wasn't the first wrestling smart, but for eight he was young, that. That was the real wrestling promotion, that that was a much more serious promotion. And there was something vaguely wrong with me that I wasn't able to watch WCW because it took wrestling serious. And the first WCW show I ever saw was a random Saturday night in 93 when we finally got cable, and it was the Beach Blast mini-movie. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and, I,
3: and I just went, yeah, really? This was the serious promotion that I was – but um, so I had other than – but it's odd because I knew who Ric Flair was when he came in. I knew who the Road Warriors were when they came in as the Legion of Doom. So – and I couldn't – I didn't read after mags at the time. So there had to be some general knowledge. But I don't think I saw any WCW product until a year after this.
2: Uh, what about you, Chad? You were pretty – probably still quite young in nineteen ninety two, right? Were you, were you watching
0: yeah. – Six years old, this is right around the time where I became uh, pretty cognizant of uh, WCW and their online storylines. I really jumped into WWF in 1990. Um, still, you know, even at this point in time, I was still holding out hope that Hulk Hogan would come back. I made the transition to anybody else yet. Um, But was starting to kind of surround myself with WCW more, getting behind Sting. Uh, Jake Roberts, we'll talk about maybe a little bit later, but Jake was actually someone that helped me kind of uh, become more noticeable in WCW, actually, when he made the move over.
2: Yeah, I mean, obviously I was here in the UK in uh, 92, but I, I remember having this set of WCW cards, and I guess you guys would love those cards now if I could find them. Um
0: yeah, but, are, are those the ones with the black background, or the more uh, colorful, like yellow and green?
2: Um, well, I remember they were—they were. I remember there was definitely a Sting one and a Ron Simmons one that I had. Yeah. So I
0: actually have a couple. Uh, some of those old, like. From right around this time period, I should dig them up. They're at my parents' house still with, like, my old wrestling stickers. Was, they,
2: were, and they were actually pretty high quality, those cards. But, I mean, I remember I remember thinking at that time, just kind of knowing, like, deep in my, like, you just knew it was a little bit shitter. Do you know what I mean? Like, it was clear that WWF was the big leagues and WCW was, like, the the, the shitty number two. Like, the, I, I'm, I, I'm trying to remember how old I was at that time. What, like, a, 11 or... 12 or something like that but I, you just know you know um and i may have told you this before chad but for some reason there was also a corner store in town that was stocking uswa figures for some reason and that was that i mean they seemed properly like i had no idea who those you know i thought they were made up wrestlers Do you know what i mean <laughs> <laughs> um anyway
0: uh, i mean i mean i think that's just a presentation issue though mostly right i mean Just the fact that WWF had such a great marketing arm for the younger generation at that point in time.
2: Well, like when everybody in your class has got a Bret Hart, you know, Pencil Case or Ultimate Warrior, you know. Right. I mean, I had
0: Hogan Sheets, Hogan Toothbrush, Hogan Alarm Clock and everything else. And then you compare that to a few... WCW figures and WCW trading cards, it I mean, kind of pales in comparison.
2: I remember when Ric Flair debuted and nobody knew who he was here because, wow. you know, nobody knew who he was. I mean, I, I I, was kind of watching the very late night WCW, but that was me, you know. <laughs> so, yeah. And even now, when I tell people, hey, Ric Flair is the greatest wrestler of all time, they look at me as if to say, what, that guy? You know, the the ones who were just fans, you know, in this period. So, yeah, there's a real perception thing there, which is quite interesting.
0: And I guess where I live is more open to that ideal than both of you guys regionally. So, yeah, it's not I would say it's not that extreme for sure. But I mean, when I when I grew up as a kid around this time, nobody was watching either. I mean, every once in a while, people would talk about. Hulk Hogan or the Ultimate Warrior, but once Brett and Luger and all those guys came into W W F and Diesel, I mean everybody was out until the NWO, so it anyway, was a pretty bleak period.
2: Let us get up to let's get back to Meltzer's uh, essay here. So first of all he talks about the big money contracts they were throwing at guys like Ric Flair, Lex Luger, the Road Warriors, Sting. He said, even if these weren't justified by the gates they drew, they were justified by the free market system. To keep talent like that, they would have to pay them more than they could earn with uh, with the competition. If not, they would join the competition. And of course, think about it: they've lost Flair, they lost Luger, they lost the Row Warriors. They've all they're all in uh, WF at this time. Sting is still there, of course. Um, Uh, If not, they would join the competition. Without the contracts, there would be no chance of the company ever picking up momentum, because as soon as they'd get hot, the key guy would be gone. The funny part was, in hindsight, even even that wasn't enough, as all but Sting wound up in the competition. But in order to switch from being number two to number one, you need to have the most recognizable stars, which in this case were names like Hulk Hogan, Roddy Piper and Randy Savage, and talk about prophetic. This is so weird reading this, knowing what we know now, isn't it? (laughs) Right. While WCW did have secret meetings or phone calls with Piper and Savage, at no point did they get a name of that caliber to jump. They couldn't pull the trigger. Even the occasional Rick Steamboat or Barry Windham, neither of whom were raided away in reality, although it probably did look that way to the TV viewers, did virtually nothing to change the perception that the wrestlers from Atlanta were a notch below the cream of the crop. Um, meanwhile, time after time, their competition pulled the trigger. WCW became the feeder system in the casual fans' eyes to the WWF. Even at a time when WCW was paying its wrestlers enormous amounts of money to avoid that very thing, I used to appear on a uh, non-wrestling talk shows several times per week a few years back and was always asked, when will Flair, Luger, Steiner's, Sting, row Warriors dump to WWF? but never when will Hogan, Piper, or Savage dump to WCW. So I think he's making a pretty obvious point there. Um, I, I will say, one thing I do remember is that when Rude went to WCW, I did think that was quite a big deal at the time. Um, it, made me, it made me think, oh, well, if Rick Rude is there, you know, it can't be that bad. <laughs> so it's just something to think about. Anyway, Jim Hood was dumped and replaced with Kip Fry. A lawyer with virtually no knowledge of the wrestling business. But Fry was enthusiastic as all hell and ready to uh, fight the big fight. He started spending money, had ideas of upgrading the shows, not all of which were good, but he was in a bad position, having very little of uh, knowledge of wrestling going in. He spent big money to sign the talent, added incentive bonuses to increase the work rate, truly wanted to clean up uh, the steroids as a real deal rather than a PR con, signed Jesse Ventura, one of the five biggest wrestling celebrities in this country, and made big money offers to some near-the-top WWF talent, although the only one his negotiations truly netted was Jake Roberts, who ultimately his successor Watts is being credit for given, uh, credited for bringing in. But after a few months of the fight, General Kip was recalled. The casualties were too high. The soldiers were happier, but the tide of the battle hadn't changed one iota. Frey never had a chance to succeed in his battle plan, and the reality was, even if given a chance, the odds were huge against him. Even at best, it would have taken years for him to understand the business well enough to have even been in competition. Let me just pause there. Robert, Um, do you think Kip Frey could have done anything else uh, than what he did? Um, Like, you know, he brought in Jake Roberts, but... Like, is Meltzer right here that the only way to change your perception was bringing in the WWF top stars?
3: You know, I'm not even certain that at this point, I mean, I don't think there's anything else he could have done other than what I think he did do, which was take a a common sense approach of what's going to make our fan base happy, that's slightly modernized to what we had been doing, you know, the... um, you know, do the Dangerous Alliance, which is an update on the Horseman, kind of keep it a little more serious and really try to get the wrestlers to put out the best product possible match-wise, because that's what we're known for with the, the whole bonus system. I'm not even sure getting Piper or Savage would have really helped because on their own, I don't know if they have the political skills to sort of survive in a landmine that doesn't want them. You know, you use Jesse Ventura as an example. Look yeah. what happened there, you know, it, for whatever reason. And we, there's a lot of opportunity tonight to talk about uh, J.R. and Jesse Ventura as a tag team on um, commentary. But it, what impact did that really have, you
2: know, in terms of their business sense and well, going he, up? He spent, we've talked about it before. I mean, he spent a lot of money on Jesse. Did, do you think Jesse was going to do anything to turn this around? Is he going to bring viewers in?
3: I mean, I know the thing that made me, brain follower, the thing that made me start watching WCW was knowing Bobby Heenan was in it mm-hmm. and being amused by him enough to be like, okay, I'll listen to him on commentary. And I did that for about, oh, two months, and I went, oh, this is a neutered, doesn't give a darn Bobby Heenan, who's a shell of what he used to be. Eh, I'd rather remember him as he was. So I stopped mm-hmm. watching. And I think Jesse, I wouldn't say quite the same way, but I still think it took a long time for them to figure out how to get him to fit in. And by that time, the benefit you get from it is kind of gone.
2: Right. Yeah. See, I, I do think that there's a slight perception that the guys that they, even the guys they do bring in a kind of has beans. I don't want to say Jesse was a has been in 1992, but hmm. it's kind of, he's associated with the eighties boom, right? Even like Jake Roberts is a, you associate him with, a, with a, the with the eighties peak, right? It's kind of, like, do you think bringing in Jake in 92 is going to pull up, pull up any trees? Ch- Chad? <laughs> um,
0: Yeah, I, I mean, it, I think in retrospect it did, but I mean, just for me, again, it's tough for me to separate. I mean, it's easy for me to separate watching it now and seeing Fat Jake wander down there. But as a kid at the time, I mean, in my eyes, it was like, oh, well, here's my second favorite wrestler up to that point point in another promotion, so... See, Maybe that, I should start paying attention. There,
2: there's a horrible thing at the back of my mind, which is basically this, and it's a, kind of an unspoken thing that I've, I've kind of been thinking about for some time. But really, I want to say that the only true draw was Ho- was Hogan. Like the only true actual draw in the whole era was was like I don't actually think any single guy apart from Hogan can propagate. Andre could propagate back in his pr- prime. Uh. But I haven't seen any evidence that anybody else can propagate in America after about 1985. Like, I mean, we we, we talk about, like, Flair Funk doing decent business in 89, but it's only, like, relatively speaking decent business. Like, D- Dusty could draw in the early 80s, but he couldn't draw in the late 80s.
0: What if... <laughs> I mean, I guess Savage, I would argue...
2: Well, have you, what have you looked at the numbers though? I mean, if you look at like Savage's, like Savage, like a typical Savage show, would do about eight thousand, ten thousand, something like that. Typical Hogan show does about eighteen thousand, guaranteed. So it's like, you know, you could stick anyone in that main event. It could be like Greg Tito. It doesn't matter. That's it'll it'll make about eight to ten thousand. Like t- like your typical Ted versus Savage main event is about ten, 000, twelve thousand. Hogan. Yeah, I- <laughs>
0: I mean I think it's oh, a comparison I, I, ooh, I think for that there's two separate things one is maybe others could necessarily pop a house and I mean like we're talking about house shows we've discussed in these observers par that are like yeah. hundreds of people not even thousands yeah so I think they could do better than that But yeah, I mean, to change the complexity of a whole promotion, which is really what WCW probably needed to do right now and was trying to do with all these creative changes uh, starting at the top level of the organization and then coming down and eventually with talent. Yeah, I mean I I think Hogan's definitely the cog there, just like now. I mean you think about, I mean it seems odd, but I mean, there's more of a gulf between TNA and WWE now than WWF and WCW then.
2: Yeah.
0: But, I mean, who who would possibly even matter in TNA except for maybe a smidge John Cena if he left? I mean, that's the only possible option.
2: Well, I, I reckon if Undertaker rocked up there, people would be like, whoa. whoa I don't
0: even it. know about <laughs> that. Because, I mean, maybe, but... Or if I
2: Austin went there or something, I don't know.
0: I just think, I mean, I think at this point, it's. I, I actually would be defined and say Cena would only matter. I, I think Undertaker might could, again, for a few weeks, but, I mean, he's not going to be a consistent performer. There's that consistency,
2: yeah.
0: like, picture that people want as the face of their promotion, and he's not that now. So, in the confines of WWE, it's good that he's a special attraction. He feels special, but. To keep you coming back week to week or going to a house show or doing something to be energized in the product, you got to have some consistency there.
2: Robert, any views on this? What do you think on my contentious claim? You know,
3: I, I agree with Chad. I'll go a step further. I don't think the only time it would have mattered, and I remember this, I don't remember the exact year to be honest, but if you recall when they, TNA tried to restart the Monday Night Wars for a few weeks.
0: Yeah, that was uh, January
3: 2010. Okay, all right. So if the first minute of their first episode had been John Cena walking out, that might have made an impact because you've got enough people who are already watching wrestling, it's on a channel people have heard of and isn't, you know, so obscure that the last two channels TNA has been on, I keep going, wait, what? I've never heard of this network. You know, so that might have made a difference. I don't think Undertaker, you know, as much as people of our age know who he is, Kids today, I've who I've you know seen talk about this. He's a guy they see wrestle once a year and have for like what six or seven years at this point.
2: They still know him and not Molly Ringwald. That's
3: just... <laughs> 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 well, no one's gonna pay to see Molly Ringwald wrestle.
2: <laughs> no, yeah, no, I get, I get the point. I get the point.
3: Well,
0: yeah, I mean, I mean, just quickly when tna tried that they had jeff hardy debut along with hogan and flair who washed up so you had your old timers then coming in and that meant nothing but even jeff hardy in 2010 it's weird to think about but he was the second most over baby face for 2008 2009 wwe and he meant nothing
2: do do you think ray would make people turn the channel
0: no because he's on lucha underground now and they're you know yeah, they, they know, barely that, survived to season two, and yeah. ratings have only—I you know, mean—they're slightly better so far in season two, but nothing tremendous. Mm. I mean the the U the U.S. market now, contemporary wise, is so odd because it's 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 just such a big difference. I mean, there's it, you, it's almost like you can't even compare WWE to any other wrestling promotion. And back then, the time frame we're talking about, I, th- again, there's more, because WWE wasn't doing great business either, so there was more opportunity for WCW, but I can definitely see how you would think they'd have to have Hogan or Bust to really make a difference. And, what, what do think, you know, what, what, as we saw, that's what they needed.
2: What if they grabbed the Warrior in 92? Do you think that would have made a difference, Ultimate Warrior?
0: That would have been interesting. I mean, he bombed in 90, um... I don't know. I mean, it, it's so weird that time because I mean, Sting and Warrior were supposed supposed to be those guys for both of those respective promotions, and neither one was. So maybe <laughs> with another chance, but it's, I mean, it's it,
2: tough for me to say. People are gonna think I'm crazy here, but I, I honestly think, like, like maybe even like the Row Warriors were probably a, bit, a bigger draw than Sting. Like it's, it sounds nuts, yeah. but I, I I honestly think that. If, you, if they brought Legion of Doom back, say, in 92, it would have seemed like a huge deal. I don't know. I mean, it, um, I just don't think the WCW stars ever drew. Like, they, they never had a history of drawing any sort of, you know, unless you go back to the days of Flair and Dusty, which is quite a long time ago at this point. So, anyway, um, it, it, Meltzer's talking about... Um, uh, Crockett and Bill Watts now being the first promoters to offer guaranteed six-figure contracts back in the mid-80s to their top talent. Why? Both both have suffered losses of too many top stars right in the middle of main event programs with little and sometimes no notice. They needed to be able to plan ahead. To do uh, that required guaranteeing those that they made plans for uh, and guaranteeing that they would be there for the long haul. The only answer was signing wrestlers to contracts. To get the wrestlers to sign, they had to they'd be offered up uh, to keep them happy enough to give up their option of going to the WWF for that time period. The WWF wasn't guaranteeing money. Still isn't. But it didn't have to because the word around the industry was, if you're on top there, you could make a whole lot of more money than you would uh, have made before or could make anywhere else. That word which was usually, but not always the truth, was more valuable in many cases than big money on paper. It also gave smart wrestlers some real leverage. Nobody used that leverage better than the Row Warriors, who in late 1987 signed a three-year contract for $500,000 a year apiece. Um, but as it turned out, even with the most cherry of all deals, they didn't even last the three years. Midway through year three, they were offered a new contract by Hurd for $156,000 apiece. When their current one went out, they were so insulted by the proposed cut in pay, okay. they didn't even wait to collect their last six months. They wanted out, and of course, Hawk an animal. You know, what, well, you know what they did then. So, yeah, kind kind of in kind of interesting. Uh, to go through all of this, um, I di- I don't have any doubt, says Meltzer, that Bill Shaw and Bob Dew, who took over the control of the wrestling company from Jack Patrick earlier this year, a company that had spilled more red ink than Atushi Anita and the Sheiks for. Heads combined. Oh, yeah, I see a little joke there. You <laughs> uh, spilt more red ink, you know? Uh, cause, That's clever. Because they bled a lot. Um, brought in <laughs> Bill Watts specifically to cut uh, costs. Um, Watts probably convinced them uh, all was well with stories on what he did with his territory and how it was ridiculous to be paying wrestlers this kind of money and how horrible guarantees are. After all, Watts never paid this kind of money. He did offer guarantees, but later changed his mind about them. He even convinced people who should understand better that guaranteed contracts ruin motivation and make for a worse product. Like the WCW wrestlers who were on guarantees, weren't working as hard in the ring every night as the WWF wrestlers who didn't have guarantees. So this is uh, some of Bill Watts' old school psychology coming in here. Like Japanese wrestlers, don't work harder than WWF wrestlers. Of course, Watts, before he uh, started the guarantees, lost most of his big talent, both to McMahon and to Crockett and his company didn't make it, a fact um, those who choose not to remember history don't seem to be willing to comprehend. The ante of the business was raised, and even though he was one of the all-time great poker faces, he didn't have enough money when the big money cards uh, players kept raising the states, nor did he have a winning hand then, and nor does he have one now. Somebody else put up the chips this time for the same game, and Watts is playing the same game by the same rules that five years earlier he had to bail out of. So, all of this, where, where are we going with all of it? Um, well, uh, this, this essay keeps on going and going and going. Um, but I'm going to get down to the bit where he's going to start talking about how much guys are getting paid. Because um, he's asking, well, what is a fair price to pay for a wrestler in 1992? Is $1,000 a fair price for main eventers? $500 for mid-card guys and $350 for prelim guys per night? that's his question and then he goes th- he goes through it all you know how can you actually figure out these costs um, and this keeps on going and going and going this essay I'm not going to uh, I'm not going to read it all um, just interesting thing to think about um, then he basically has a part two in the September the 21st uh, 92 um, where The tension at World Championship Wrestling has reached unheard of levels over the past few days, and there doesn't appear to be any sign of relief in sight. Unless some kind of cure for all these ills are found in a hurry, there will be some sort of explosion of one side or the other. That much is a certainty. The only question is, what debris will remain when it's over? So, as we discussed last week, uh, Bill Watts was largely brought in into WCW to improve the bottom line. The company had bled Red ink for nearly four years, and the men in charge, Bill Shaw and Bob Dew, had decided the inevitable day of reckoning had come. Clearly, in the current economic climate, with all aspects of wrestling interest and income on the decline, the best one could hope for is to tread water or to slice the increase the total revenue of the company. For the short term, which is this quarter's balance sheets, a substantial raise in revenue wasn't going to happen building for the future seemingly isn't the prime goal as much as a a less devastating quarterly balance. So basically he's trying to just, it's damage limitation at this point because things are that bad, okay? Every cut, no matter how frivolous it might seem to one person, is going to make someone in the company bleed, figuratively. Um, And then he keeps on going about this. The villain, in all cases of course, is going to be Watts. It's largely his decisions where the cuts are going to be made. And every cut is going to hurt someone. This is only compounded by rumors that he is receiving a large percentage bonus of everything he cuts. It's something believed by most wrestlers, although um, it has been denied as well. There is no evidence offered either way. The timing of hiring his son as a wrestler wasn't the greatest either. (laughs) Um, More on uh, uh, Eric Watts in a a minute. Um, So Chad, you're the accountant here. What, What happens when companies just bleeding money like this? Do you have to bring in somebody like Watts, who's going to just ruthlessly cut money?
1: Oh
0: yeah, I mean, I mean, your strategy is you you trim the fat, and that usually is a, a it's very tough once that ship is to that point that you can steady it and actually become prosperous again as we see what actually happens on wcw uh, i've been a part of this with two companies one that went out of business and one that actually uh, was able to sell itself so that's generally what you see they're a trimming of expenses or trying to uh, sell your business and liquidate everything
2: so so basically everybody is miserable everybody's scared some perhaps out of paranoia probably the most of the lo- Probably most are scared of the legitimate reality of the situation. And as all of this was going on in the world of WCW, into Bill Watts' office stepped Brian Pillman. Earlier this year, Brian Pillman had signed a two-year contract with Kip Fry. Fry, if you recall, was a major proponent of the light heavyweight division. Pillman, if you recall, had just come off a series of matches with Jushin Liger. They were arguably the best series of matches in North America since 1989. (laughs) Future matches between the two promised to get only better and to add a new dimension to US wrestling. Pillman's prospects looked bright at that point. He seemed the clear choice to be the flagship of the light heavyweight division in WCW, and quite possibly for years to come. Um, So where is what Meltzer going? His series with uh, Liger was hot, um, with both his faces, Liger was basically an unknown to the casual audience with no angle supporting it. Uh, but this was kind of hot wrestling. Um, blah, blah, blah. So um, Pillman's contract called uh, for roughly 4, 425000 in base pay over two years. An estimated 200000 and then 225000 in the second year. And a series of incentive bonuses that depending... Depending on him being put into main events or major shows could net him in the range of 35,000 to 70,000 more each year. Frey saw Pillman as a major player for the future and the focal point for the new division. When the change of management came, obviously, as the events of the past week have shown and the hindsight shows more clearly, Watts thought the deal was uh, exorbitant. He's pretty much admitted not following the business since 1987. More likely than not, in his mind, the Liger matches never even existed. No doubt upon seeing the deal, he immediately dismissed it as the work of a previous executive who knew nothing and paid someone far more than what they were worth. But it was a two-year dean, signed, sealed, and on the books through the spring of 94. So what happened here? Any, anybody know?
3: Isn't it something like basically he goes in to Watts and Watts tells him, I want to restructure your contract to be much lower pay but you'll keep a push and be a significant name or you can keep the same money you have and I'm going to use you as a job guy. And Pillman basically says, fine, I'll be the world's highest paid jobber.
2: Yes. Um, basically, Pillman was asked to give up all of his incentive bonuses. Um, ironically, the guy who was publicly so against guaranteed income because he felt it ruined wrestlers' incentives was going after the part of the contract that built the incentive. But to Watts, the contract was simply too large. There is definitely a valid defence for what's his thoughts in regard to the contract, although I'm not sure there is a defence for the position he put Pillman in. Pillman's contract called for him to earn incentives based on his push. If he isn't pushed, there's less incentives to pay. And someone else with no incentives in the contract can be put in the same spot, and it would, in the simplest terms, cost the company less money. Simplistically speaking, that is. So, basically, Pillman's not going to get pushed in any single way because... If he is, it triggers incentives in his deal. So he's basically saving money by not pushing Philman. <laughs> Absolutely nuts.
0: Does that does that ever happen in uh, soccer parf over there? Because that does happen in major sports here.
2: Mm, you, occasionally, like, sometimes you'll get guys who get certain things that trigger into their... Like, I don't know, right. if, if they play for the club 20 times... It triggers like another two million that they have to pay the club they bought them for, and sometimes you get like a new manager coming in who'll just put, who'll put a guy on the bench or just not play him. Yeah, because he doesn't yeah. want to trigger. It doesn't happen that regularly though.
0: Yeah, it's pretty common. I mean, with some incentive based contracts where uh, you know clubs will tell people to just sit at home, and they'll pay the guaranteed money, but they don't want to. Uh, you know they're they're more of a harm when they're actually playing, so they'll just sort of eat the cost of the guaranteed money.
2: Right. I mean, it's it's kind of like a hard. I don't know. really know what Watts does here, though. I mean, he's been brought in to cut, cut, uh, thing, and then he's told, well, Brian Pillman, this mid card young guy, is on four hundred twenty five grand a year, or four hundred twenty five grand over two years. I mean, Robert, what do you do? <laughs>
1: <laughs> Quit? No, um,
3: I don't know. I mean, what? Just looking at Pillman's contract, like okay, two hundred and ten thousand a year, give or take. Do we know, like, comparatively, what an average WBF mid Carter would have made during the same time?
2: Mm, no, I mean the, the only thing I, I the thing I always remember seeing is um, the, the the pay. For SummerSlam 91.
3: 91,
2: right. Yep. Yeah, I mean, that that's the biggest document I've seen from that era. And the thing that always brings, that stands out in my mind is a uh, shaky baby getting 20 grand for being in that main event, <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> which is just mental. <laughs> you know, Colonel Mustafa got paid 20 grand for that, you know. So, um, like, I guess, but it, it also suggests that Vince was still using a lot of paper appearance type. Deals and not that many guaranteed contracts.
3: It's it's odd because you would think. I mean, we're we're at a point now in the fall of ninety two where the bottom line for the W F has dropped off tremendously. I mean, that Savage Flair post WrestleMania program was the last, lowest drawing program for main events they'd ever had at that point by yeah. far.
2: And and in fact, uh, further on in this newsletter, and I'm going to get to it now, is um he's doing business comparisons across August of ninety two. So we're going to get average attendance for the two main companies now, okay? So World Wrestling Federation, average attendance across August of 92, across all the house shows and everything. Anyone want to take a guess, ballpark figure?
0: 4,000.
2: 3,250. And I was...
3: wonder if that's with SummerSlam, what did that draw? Like 80,000 really bumping it up?
2: Yeah, Is well. that including it? Um, hold on. A no, it doesn't say. This is just for August, and it doesn't say whether SummerSlam's involved. But compared to August of ninety-one, well, that's
0: just the average for August. There's no way.
2: Um, I mean, com- compared to August of ninety-one, they were drawing four thousand six hundred and sixty. So that's yeah. down down thirty okay. percent from last year. Okay. July of ninety-two. Average estimated gate. Okay. Uh, hold on average estimated gate for august forty two thousand okay per show, which is down twenty four percent from fifty five thousand nine hundred and twenty in august of ninety one so they they 're basically drawing about what twelve thirteen grand less per show per gate across august of ninety two yeah
0: and the percentages are even worse because you 're down. 25 percent with inflation from year to year going up so yeah you're, you're saying about a 28 29 percent drop uh dollar for dollar
2: percentage of house shows sold out august 91 for wf naught percent percentage of house shows sold out august 92 for wwf naught percent so there we go um Average cable television rating in August of 91 was 2.4. August of 92, 2.1. So the TV ratings have gone down a bit as well. So, you know, the only thing that went up was SummerSlam. Um, so the SummerSlam gate obviously was 2.7 million for with an estimated 75,000 fans. There's your Wembley, Robert. <laughs> um, and, of course, SummerSlam 91 did 20,000 which is a four four hundred 445,000 gate. But if you look at the buy rate, Summerslam 91 did a 2.7. Summerslam 92 did a 1.5. So oh. really, it's an artificial spike because it would happen in Wembley, basically. Um, so interesting. And if you look at the Summerslam preview show, hosted by Sean Mooney, of course, you uh, <laughs> um, did a 3.2. 6 rating in 91, 2.7 rating in 92, so the preview show is down like a whole, you know. Now, if you move to WCW, so that, that's the situation in WWF, not looking really for Vince, okay? Will you all agree?
0: Sure. Uh, I mean, down uh-huh. across the board, right?
2: Yeah. Now, look at WCW. Average attendance for oh, August God. of 1991, 1.8 thousand, Okay. One thousand eight hundred and twenty so not um like a significantly lower less than half of WF but still not as bad as you'd think right estimated average attendance for August of ninety two is actually two point three thousand two thousand three hundred and eighty that's plus twenty three percent so bill watts say what you want he's got the he's got the house show numbers up can you believe this?
0: Well, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I think a cool, better comparison would be to look at like they made, 92, if I don't think we have it, but, I mean, because that's right, I, get, I, mean, I mean, we talk about it almost every show we're doing in this point part, but, I mean, the Dangerous Alliance was so amazing from quality-wise, but mm-hmm. at the box office it just didn't translate, so if... Like, the stuff we're seeing now was outdrawing that um, with the gate. its I mean, it's kind of similar to what we're seeing now, though, with, with modern-day WWE. I mean, WWE just legitimately had the most people they've ever had attend a show and had an absolutely huge live gate for a show that was pretty panned across the board.
2: However... And I You're the accountant, Chad. Look at this number. Average average gate, August of 91, 21,840. Average gate, August of 92, 21,420. Down 1.9%. So even though the attendance is up, the gates are down. So I guess that means what's what's, uh, comping them or something?
0: (laughs) Uh, uh, Yeah, either more comps or slashing prices of the uh, tickets. Yeah. I mean I mean that's not a huge difference, but yeah, you certainly don't want it to go down. Again, with inflation from year to year, you're talking about 4 or 5%. So not as dramatic. I mean, that's a pretty dramatic down grade for WWF. I mean, it really when you present the numbers just for August in that way, it looks like SummerSlam 92 really saved their asses. Yep. With that huge gate. I mean, that was a million, two 2 million dollar
2: gate. Yeah. And and I've said it before, one of the all-time things Vince doesn't get enough credit for was that was somehow selling out Wembley when he was only on Sky TV. So Right. Anyway, um the percentage of households sold out in August of 91 was 13% and in August of 92 was 0 percent for WCW. um cable ratings 2.3 and 2.0. And then he actually goes into the, some of the old Japan and new Japan stuff. I won't go into all of it, um, but it's interesting that if you look, the average attendance for an All Japan show was about two point two thousand four hundred. Chad across uh, August and across ninety one and ninety two didn't really change. The average gate was seventy nine thousand. Didn't really change year on year. Um, Percentage of sold how shows sold out eighty percent. All Japan shows sold out in August of 92. So you can see the conservative giant barber booking to his capacity there. But when you look at New Japan, average attendance, August of 91, 10,000. August of 92, 9,000. Average gate in August of 91, 453,000. August of uh, 92, 499,000, up 9.2% so inoki basically like new japan clearly were the biggest company in the world like like in terms of if you look at their live gates and the numbers yeah, they would that, i mean it's,
0: that i mean those will be a little inflated because of g1 but
2: yeah
0: um because of, you know in august they're doing multiple sumo hall days well, but, it
2: it doesn't include the um the the 840,000 gate at the uh, budokan
0: uh, for All Japan?
2: For All Japan. So that's not included. Um, okay,
0: and that would have been... And that Budokan show part would have been when Masawa beat Hansen for the Triple Crown. Yeah. Just so. just,
2: just an interesting little thing to think about, that they were like New Japan. Yeah,
0: but, but yeah and, and the weird thing about New Japan, too, is this is right before they start the New Japan versus War feud, which did really good uh, at the box office and was amazing to watch as well. So it was the dangerous alliance kind of stuff come to fruition because it did great box office and it was uh a joy to watch going back may actually be my favorite feud of the '90s. going back through the stuff
2: do do you think you could say though that new japan was the biggest wrestling company the number one in the world in 92 based on based on what we just did or would you still get because of uh, of the summer
0: yeah i want to see what cmll was doing Right. This is right—the emphasis of uh, AAA as well, so they were kind of splintered a bit. So probably New Japan, I think it's probably fair to say, was number one at this point in time.
2: Well, well, anyway, more, more... Well, yeah, I
0: think New Japan is number two is not a terrible argument either. No, I mean because they were able to sell out the Budokan now consistently, so they were rocking and rolling.
2: I, I just think that their numbers were so much bigger than everyone else's, but, you know, I guess they don't operate for, like they operate the tours, don't they? So that must yeah. factor. Well, well, anyway, um, Bill Watts has announced that the top rope rule based on the fans' response would be removed for the light heavyweight tournament and for that division starting with the tournament. That's because we care about what the fans think. Didn't the fans vote to eliminate the rule altogether regardless of the weight division? Robert. Comment on the top pro rule if you might.
3: <laughs> oh God. Um, you know, I actually do get what he was trying to do. I, I do see the logic of trying to set things back and, and make everything safer for the workers as a compromise to what you've done with removing the mats and stuff like that. But I just think at some point you have to be willing to say, okay, how much time can we peel back here? And how much can we reset expectations to be much lower? than what they have been while we're in a competition that we're losing um i i don't especially because you're taken away no i'm 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 glad he did it i think it was the smart thing to do to get rid of the ban and reen you know go back to allowing high-flying wrestling which is one of wcw's signature points i get what he was trying to do i do i just think it was wrong wrong audience wrong time period and trying to change go back too much
2: yeah and it, i I think waving it just for the light heavyweight t- tournament is just too complicated. I mean, we'll talk about this later in the show, but i I just think that fans generally can't deal with this level of nuance you know yeah so it's a it's, a, it's a, this rule for these guys, but just just for these guys here is a different rule just just too much i think too complicated. would you agree
3: oh absolutely no i
2: I guess I
0: disagree slightly in that I think something like the TV title was able to get over, and you knew that had a hard, fast TV time limit. Um,
2: yeah, you know, yeah, I can see that. But every once
0: yeah. in a while, like it, but, but it would be—you'd have to be very. In some ways, that would again, though, be. How do I say You'd have to be overly obvious of, oh, these are smaller guys so they can jump off the top rope. And I don't necessarily think you want to be that obtuse with a light heavyweight or cruiserweight division. I mean, they're going to be smaller just by nature, but you don't want to really bring that to the forefront where the viewer is trained to say, oh, well, these are two skinny, you know, lightweight guys coming in, so they can fly off the top rope, but yeah, it almost has kind of like a puny aspect to it, you know, a stigma.
2: Well, Shane Douglas debuted beating Super Invader with a belly to belly. It was good how they put Douglas in exactly in as every jobber would be. So he had no musical intro, no big build-up, made it look like it's going to be a typical squash, and then they put Douglas over instead. So we're about to see Shane Douglas on this show. We'll talk about him in a bit. Pil- uh, Brian Pillman is now a total heel. Um, and they appeared to what, uh, to have what had been a loaded boot gimmick to beat Marcus Bagwell, but Jim Ross never sold it as clearly enough that if you didn't know what was supposed to be happening, you wouldn't have a clue what was going on. Pillman had a confrontation with Brad Armstrong, which wound up with Scotty e. Flamingo and Bagwell involved. Anybody know anything about Pillman's heel turn here? Yeah.
0: Yeah, that I mean, this was kind of just it built and built, and then he ended up cheating, and that was sort of the catalyst, and we'll see on this show, this is kind of, I guess, if you want to say it, unveiling on a big stage, but this was him sort of formulating what his heel persona was going to be like going forward.
2: Also on television this weekend, they aired portions of Rick Rude versus Kenzuki Sinsaki and Sasaki and Kenji Muto versus the Steiners from Japan. Rude Sasaki was edited to the point that it came off as totally disjointed, unlike the actual 20-minute match they had, which was very good. It was kind of annoying showing four minutes on Saturday um, and then saying you'd have to watch Sunday's show to see the rest of the match. Jake Roberts suffered as a concussion in Oklahoma City and (laughs) missed both television tapings but was back in... Chicago on September the 11th. Cactus Jack is suffering from, among other many other things, a badly torn groin muscle and is moving very little at ringside as manager of the Barbarian. He's not expected back in the ring until October, so it's one of the reasons why Cactus Jack is is managing here because he's injured. Uh, Big Van Vader suffered a badly swollen wrist at the Clash, but it wasn't broken. And the ticket prices in most cities will be moved back up in October with the top price going from $12 to $15. Although this isn't going to please fans, Kip Frey's experiment of dropping ticket prices wound up having little, if any, positive effect on attendance. There we go. And had a definite negative effect.
0: That's how they had higher attendance but lower gate.
2: Yeah. Just slash the prices. Um, Lance Russell, who headed the 900 number, will retire on... Um, September the fir- on November the 1st Russell was planning on retiring just a few months later anyway but they sped it up and pretty much are putting Jim Ross and Dennis Brent in charge of the 900 number so they don't pay per diem tra- um, so they don't have to pay per DM and travel c- costs for Lance Russell anymore in his last couple of months <laughs> 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 Um, <laughs> that's a p- such a petty cost cutting but Russell does not retire does he?
0: Well yeah, I mean he goes back to Memphis. But yeah.
2: maybe he was just bored.
0: Well, I think I wonder if this was uh who knows, but this could have been a you know, a nudge nudge of I don't know when his contract or what type of deal he was, but just saying like, Okay, your contract's coming up, we're probably not gonna renew it. We can, you know, retire you, we like you, Lance, but one way or the other, you're not going to be in charge of the 900 number going forward.
2: This, this is one of those things that I just cannot understand. You know, if I was cost-cutting, the first thing I'd do would, would be literally to hire the broadcast team. We've talked about this so many times, but you've got Lance and Soli and Magnum TA and all these guys just knock, do all these dudes knocking about. Even know. Tony. Tony, like, you know, I I know Jim Ross was kind of hosting like, what, two or three shows at this time, but... I don't know. I just think they've got, like, you could slash that team a bit. Uh, oh, yeah. Hell, I mean, I think... David Crockett's still working there. Stick him back in the booth. <laughs> that, that wouldn't cost you anything. What do, what do you reckon, Robert?
3: <laughs> yeah, I, I... How many people, was it like close to a dozen people at this point who were announcers or doing something? I don't see... I mean, I get WCW has a lot more TV that doesn't recycle than WWF did at the time, but you need four people, I would say would be generous, and then one interviewer, maybe two, and cut the rest.
2: You need an A team, a B team, and a C team, and um, Mean Gene. Missy. And and Missy, that's what you, I guess, yes. I mean, I'm just trying to think of what, Vin, what Vince would keep. I mean, typically you've got... Monsoon and Heenan, Vince and
3: Vincent
2: Vince and Jesse. Vince doesn't cost any money. There's your David Crockett,
0: which I mean, Watts could do commentary just oh, to Yeah, wait.
2: Watts could Watts could go in the booth, and then who else would he keep? Sean Mooney and Mean Gene. That's basically your. Oh, and Lord Alfred Hayes. I wonder what Lord Alfred Hayes was on.
0: <laughs> I, I want to know what. Um, quick sidebar part, but going through these T T's. I want to know what Lord Alfred Hayes had on Vince all these years. He adds nothing of note on any of these shows. (laughs) He's not funny. He's not clever. He just sits there.
2: He he does excel at one really key skill, which I've talked about before, and that is he can talk for literally two minutes without saying anything. Yeah, that's all he does.
3: (laughs) Well, you guys know how Hayes left, right? You've heard that story.
2: No, why didn't you remind us?
3: Well, in 90, I think it was 95, uh, Vince had to cut the front office salary and eventually he decided he would, this is not something I agree with, he would eventually cut the front office salary of just the people who had been wrestlers or had had some involvement in the wrestling business beyond being like, you know, Brian, well that's a bad example, but Kevin Dunn and people like that would have their salary cut. And apparently the only person who was so offended by this that he quit the company (laughs) Was Lord Alfred Hayes, and this is '95, where the only thing he is doing is the promotional consideration paid for by the following bit at all.
0: <laughs> it's like what, a, what um. A... He'll decline on, man. I mean but seriously what like around this time in ninety two I was just like oh, you know, well he's just an old English guy there giving a but no, I mean this is 1984 and he ain't doing jack shit then either.
2: <laughs> yeah, the his career oh, is
0: something. But, but yeah, I mean I mean I think Watts certainly I mean, I hate to say a part, but probably first person on your list would have been, you know, Jesse, right?
2: Well, yeah, I mean, like, like he could just stick himself in there and do the same, virtually the same job, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah, I mean, Watson's really good in mid-south. I mean, he can, I think Watson (laughs) Tony actually would have been pretty fun. Well,
2: well, while we're talking about weird uh, people quitting over weird things, what about Gordon Soley quitting WCW in 1995? Did you remember that one? No. it he, Gordon
0: and Hayes had a conglomerate meeting together.
2: Well, um, now what what happened was is that Gordon solely objected so much to Angelo Poffo being inducted into the Hall of Fame right. that he quit. <laughs> 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 he thought. He thought. It, he thought. <laughs> He thought it denigrated the seriousness of the Hall of Fame and quit. So I can't. I can't wait until we get to that, Chad, because that, like...
0: that is too. That is old man. Man, is...
2: <laughs> You could imagine Hayes and Soli, uh, Lord Alfred Hayes and Soli, meeting up in a bar in
0: 1995. You know. <laughs> like those two? Those two stories. It sounds like they're ripe for some uh, GWE discussion to me. <laughs>
2: Anyway, September the 28th, 92. There's a a hell of a lot of melter this week. I mean, um, let's have a look. Um, uh, Hold on. Butch Reed is knocking around. Uh, Can you believe it? He showed up at a TV taping in Macon. Um, uh, However, WCW have a storyline set up involving Reed, which was to start in Macon, but had to be postponed. The company was attempting to find a replacement uh, for Reed, to debut at center stage on Monday, Mondo Clean, a larger version of Joe Khan, both in ability, charisma, and physique, was offered the spot apparently on Friday, but then called Titan and got a starting date at Titan's October tapings. So they, so WWF, who's, who is who the hell's Mondo Clean? Do you know? I don't know that. Well, I don't know. WWF poached him at the last second. Uh, so what happened to Butch Reed then? Why didn't Butch Reed do this run? Did he went back to his uh, rodeo ranch? Did he? Reed apparently...
0: I, guess, I don't. I don't know. I did not know about this. Um, Mondo Clean. How is that spelled? K L E E N.
3: All right, I, I just looked it up. Uh, Mondo Clean is. This
1: is so bad. Oh God! Is, is like Damien button. Demento?
2: Oh my God! So the WWF poached Damien Demento as he was about to appear as a replacement for Butch Reed in 1992. What the hell? Anyway.
3: <laughs> That's like them taking Rod Trongard in 88.
2: It's <laughs> bizarre, weird stuff. Um. Anyway. Well, oh, I
3: mean,
0: Harvey was ranked number 216 in the PWI 500 that year. So. He was,
2: yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so as of uh, Monday's television, nobody had filled the spot for Butch Reed. Whatever idea they had for Reed was seemingly dropped. Uh, Reed apparently contacted the office afterwards and claimed he had the wrong date in his head for the taping, so that's why he wasn't there. Paulie Dangerously was also sent on Hatus on Tuesday, with a decision being made to put Steve Austin as a solo. Since he'll remain on contract, um, and apparently wasn't offering any kind of contract buyout except to see a storyline explaining his absence, he'll most likely eventually return. While there may be a storyline as blah blah blah. Oh my god, Chad! The news I've been waiting for for years. (laughs) Jim Garvin was tentatively released Tuesday after a contract buyout. That was sad. Garvin? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Did you? You you
0: saw the Hall of Fame?
2: I saw the Hall of Fame, yeah. I was
0: on my cruise.
2: He he didn't give us a yeah 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 but yeah
0: I know I, I I love the gift that somebody had of them dancing when they came out and <laughs> what what they say it was like when your uncle and your dad get drunk at your wedding it was so bad them dancing.
2: <laughs> Garvin had approximately get this Chad seventeen months remaining on a reported one hundred eighty six thousand oh. pound a year dollar a year contract. <laughs> Garvin was on $186,000 a year.
0: <laughs> so, so maybe Pillman wasn't out of line being... Uh, Holy
2: shit. Garvin was given a huge lump sum, reportedly in the range of 180000 to give up the remainder of his deal as a buyout.
1: So, ah.
2: so Garvin was given almost two hundred grand in 1992 just to leave. <laughs> Go
0: away. That's that's exactly what I was telling you about what they do with baseball players. They send them out to pasture. Just go home.
2: As part of the release, he's free to wrestle anywhere he can find work. Did did anyone give him a job?
0: Well, I mean, he he does make a uh, curtain call back to the promotion, you know.
2: On the surface, this does appear to be a deal that benefits both sides, since WCW had no plans for Garvin, and it saves the company money over the long haul. Also... Chad and Parv don't, watch, don't have to watch him anymore, <laughs> so that's good. Uh, Garvin himself gets a big check now, plus he has the um, chance to earn whatever he can if he can find work elsewhere for the next 17 months. While not confirmed, it is believed Michael Hayes' contract, which was for a similar time period and a similar value, was also bought out, albeit at a far lower price. Why? Why at a lower price? <laughs> However, Hayes was given a new contract to work primarily as an announcer. Both Freebird's contracts were... So, so get this. Garvin gets a 180 grand payout, and Hayes gets a job as an announcer a lower deal. Like, how does that work?
0: And another announcer.
2: Bizarre. Anyway. Just uh, what they
0: needed.
2: Uh, both Freebird's contracts were originally planned not to be renewed early this year. However, due to an office clerical error, they were informed that they wouldn't be renewed just days after the contract had automatically renewed itself. So <laughs> do you remember when the iron, do you remember when we find out the iron chic worked yeah. a whole year just because this automatic, like yeah. who has an office that automatically renews contracts?
0: Well, yeah, it's just, well, I don't know. I mean, I, you know, I'm an auditor and You do see this sometimes where, uh, <laughs> I, these companies will enter in not contracts, but like certain leasing agreements and stuff like that. Well, I, on one audit that I did, this company moved buildings and was in their brand new building and they forgot to cancel the lease on their old building. So it automatically renewed. Oh, my God. So then they were paying and they had to pay a year's rent on a vacant building. Uh, Unbelievable. So just, a, you know, there's there's some boneheaded moves.
2: I have just found out another key where the Big Boys pay question answered. This is also what happened with Tom Zenk, who got a two-year automatic contract. There you go. <laughs> so that's why Zenk is still there. Any thoughts, Robert? I mean, <laughs> well,
3: just something occurred to me, which is um, I know Hogan's contract didn't work through WCW. It was like through Turner Home Entertainment or something like that, where WCW wasn't paying it, so it never entered into the red part of their their balance sheet. I'm wondering if the same thing might not have been true with announcers working for, like, TBS or Turner Broadcasting directly and not being part of WCW's costs.
1: Interesting. And so because
3: Turner Broadcasting is so big, you can have 10 or 12 announcers for the wrestling company, and it doesn't matter to your bottom line.
2: And that also means Jesse's fat salary wouldn't come out of their budget either. That's an, that's an interesting question.
0: Yeah, that's, that's a good possibility, WCW just being a subsidiary of Turner Broadcasting that some people would have a... uh, It it really depends on what your paycheck says. Does it say... WCW does it say Turner Broadcasting.
2: Watts had a meeting with the four highest-paid wrestlers, Sting, the Steiners, and Rude. The Steiners? Uh, Yes, Sting and Rude are both under contract through early 1995. The Steiners' contract runs out around December, and they were each offered... The $1,000 per night deal, which would probably work out in being in line what they're doing if they went to the WWF. So this is what Watts is doing now. He's offered the Steiners one grand a night, which is what they'd get with Vince. Hmm, I wonder what's going to happen here. <laughs> All money factors being equal, the WWF seemed to hold advantage to wrestlers who had an option of going there right now because of the overall atmosphere is less stressful and depressing and the allure of it being big time. Um. So yes, this is actually a really difficult situation for Watts. What did, what? I mean, what can he do? Like the, he's in yeah. a rock and a hard place here, isn't he? He can't.
0: Yeah, all he could do is what he did. So.
2: Yeah.
0: I mean, on on the I'd say on the business
2: side, light heavyweight division is put on hold. An announcement expected to air on Saturday. Watts will announce that the light heavyweight title tournament. Uh, that has been talked about won't, in fact, be taking place until sometime in 1993, uh, saying that to have a true international tournament, it would take that long to put it together. I mean, talk talk about, like, so ridiculous announcing these things on air, you know? Um, the, the reality is that Watts didn't like the way wrestlers under £236 have been talked about as light heavyweights on television constantly, and he's afraid that in fans' eyes... Uh, they've taken it to mean that they can't compete or be viably programmed with the heavyweights because of that classification. Um, do you know what? I've, I've said this before. This is one of those areas where I'm with Watts. I don't like the idea of weight categorization because it makes the light guy seem wimpy to me. Any any views here?
0: Um, well, I mean, I think, you know, Eaton and Lane weren't presented as... The biggest guys in mid south, but their weight never being mentioned helped them, um, and they were able to get over, of course. Yeah, but like if, if you contrary, if,
2: me, if you think about the old like I don't let's say just say Jack Briscoe, he was about two hundred thirty five pounds. He wasn't like a big big guy, you know. He was tall, but like I don't I, I just don't understand why why the weight thing has to be such a big deal, you know? I
0: yeah, I think the gravity of two. I mean, in fact, I can always remember like Hogan was 303 pounds and Andre was whatever, seven foot tall, 400 pounds. So it does seem kind of wimpy to some, you know, somebody 220 pounds, which is, you know, pretty big guy. All things considered is it's it's a downgrade. Um, I think you can certainly just say he's a light heavyweight competitor and just be done with it.
2: Watts has actually commented on the, the lead three-page story in The Last Observer, confirming that most of the information in regard to his goal is to eliminate the red ink by heavy cock-custing and to make up of the new contracts he's offering. Watts explained that he fully believes in incentive bonuses, but that the incentive bonuses in the current contracts were guaranteed, and therefore he didn't agree to them. He also didn't agree with Kip Fry's steroid policy, which gave wrestlers bonuses for complying, He said that if steroids were going to be banned, that the enforcement should just be by punishing those who don't conform to the guidelines. He said that Fry greatly overspent for Jesse Ventura, which he says is proven by the fact that Ventura came in and the television ratings still went down. But he's happy with Ventura's efforts in trying to fit in. He said that Fry shouldn't have been credited with signing Jake Roberts because Fry would never have got him if Roberts hadn't already left Titan. He confirmed that he wouldn't... uh, agreed to the guaranteed salary deal that Roberts and Fry were negotiating, but hadn't been signed when he replaced. After much haggling, Roberts agreed to Watts' per-match deal, which is at the $1,000 per match rate. So there you go. Jake Roberts got paid $1,000 for Halloween Havoc 92, I guess. Um, Roberts insisted on putting a maximum on the number of shows per year he'd work. Watts said that different wrestlers will have different guarantees in regard to the new contracts as far as dates, some will be given a minimum number of dates, some a maximum, and others no guarantees with regards to dates. So this is some pretty old-school c- contracts now where they're basically, you know, you're going to get this match per night, and we're going to guarantee you this number of nights. So it's not like an annual salary anymore. Um, so, yeah, there we go. Um, and there's stuff about him running house shows and you know, it goes, there's some pretty detailed stuff in all of these observers, um, but I think we've gone into some of that detail, so I'm going to move on. Um, Rick Steiner, this is the October the 5th, 92 now, um, and Rick Steiner's, the Steiner's in Japan at this time. Um, I guess they're working at tour, but they're still contract with the WCW, is that right?
0: Yeah, just in the talent exchange.
2: Just in the talent exchange, okay. And hold on a second. I'm just going to get to the WCW part of the news here. Expect the steady stream of new angles on television on a weekly basis, a la Dusty Rhodes' 1988 booking, with people turning so fast that only the hardcores can keep up with it. I expect at least a few new twists and turns at television taped on Tuesday night in Columbus. One of the matches that will take place on that taping has Steamboat defending the TV title against Scott Steiner. While running all these angles makes for entertaining television, doing too much too fast confuses most casual viewers, and we already saw the result of what happened in 1988 in the NWA, and the late 1986 in Mid-South when a promotion continually throws angle upon angle out there hoping that something gets hot, when doing so much pretty much guarantees nothing is going to get hot because it all starts looking the same. Of course, the company is in a tough position because reversing a trend of declining TV ratings is the hardest task of all. If people watch TV, you can at least get them to uh, the arenas by building towards a program that in some way excites or intrigues them. I think it carries on going, but this is one of those things I do want to talk about with both of you here. And Robert, I'm especially interested in uh, your take on this because I have come to believe that none of this stuff matters in the slightest. And we see it currently with the current product, which is absolutely shocking, and it doesn't seem to make any difference at all. Like either the product's hot, or the either the viewership is there, or it isn't, or it flatlines, or it. it, it I, I've I've come to think that the product itself doesn't really doesn't really make too much difference. On you like they can't turn this around. Wrestling just wasn't cool in nineteen ninety two. Like, sure. Yeah, I mean, I know. Yeah. I,
3: I agree. I just think it comes down to, you know, you're going to get – the more you attempt to do too much on television too quickly, the more you risk confusing the audience that's going to come in and watch it and be fresh to it. And that's what you want. I mean, I can only imagine somebody who – I don't know if there's anyone like this, but if anyone had switched over with Vince Russo to WCW in 1999, you know, as a viewer –
2: yeah what
3: they would have made used to all these new characters and these concepts that are changing you know what five times a show let alone you know week by week and it would have just burned them out um i can recall having a similar level of confusion this isn't wrestling related but uh if i don't think you would have Parv, but chad have you ever heard of a show called dark shadows yes okay So it was a soap opera done in the 60s and 70s. It was like horror theme. And what they would do is about, oh, every year, they would do a time travel thing where a character goes back in time. And all of a sudden, the next day, 30 people on a show are playing completely different characters with completely different backstories, motivations, friends, enemies, allies, and you have to figure it all out. And good luck. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I think it's a similar concept. You you can't do too much and expect a new audience to hook in what you've got to do and credit to Bischoff even though there's there's issues I have with the angle it worked is you've got to find one new hot thing and sell the heck out of that one thing to the point where everyone who's coming in understands that's the thing to care about
2: right yeah so but you, but you do think it can be done in a wrestling... cuz like i I want to say that let's just say let's just pretend that all of Watts' booking was perfect in ninety two mm-hmm. I honestly don't think it would have made a difference. I honestly don't think that that would have got the gates up or down or anything like i mean we look at the Kip fry stuff the dangerous alliance was awesome didn't make a didn't make a difference at all i think it yeah I
3: think it can, but I think it takes time. So I really think that a lot of the, I mean, maybe I'm just wrong on this, but a lot of the buildup for, um, to go back to a little later on, the reason uh, the WWF came back, they had some really good booking at the top in 97 with uh, the Hart Foundation sort of Steve Austin angle. And it didn't really move the ratings all that much at the time, but it got at least people to be talking about, hey, there's at least something interesting going on, and I've kind of noticed... Getting hot again can take a while. You know, we think of WCW as going from ice cold to the NWO, but that didn't happen either. You know, it went, Nitro came in, then they had a Savage Flair feud that a lot of people seemed to like around my time period because they were the old guys we were familiar with. And then we were a little more into it so that when this hot new concept hit, everyone was suddenly interested. So I think perfect booking could have helped a bit. And maybe it could have helped set it for like a year or two years down the road. It can really pick up. But if your plan is we need to turn this around this month, this week, this day, nope, not going to happen. It's not going to work.
2: Okay, well, Missy Hyatt had a brief soundbite on a current affair this past Friday night along with Jason Hervey talking about Madonna. And you'd never guess it but Madonna is Missy Hyatt's idol. <laughs> so there we go, our old friend Jason Hervey in action. Um, Cactus Jack was back in the ring uh, September the 25th, uh, teaming with Jake Roberts um, uh, against Ron Simmons and Nikita Koloff. I believe that Jack was pretty much ordered back in the ring due to a depleted heel side, even though he's nowhere near ready, phys- physically ready to perform because of his badly torn groin muscle and was supposed to stay out of the ring till mid-October, so... Uh, Cactus Jack there kind of working injured. Saturday's TBS television show was the best show in a while with all the pressure on after the bad ratings. Although I didn't think that Bruno Sammartino added much on color, he did an empty arena interview with Tony Schiavone that was one of the best Babyface promos I've seen in a long time. You seen that, Chad?
0: I don't recall that. Uh, seems interesting.
2: Yeah, I, I wouldn't I mind tra- tracking well, down. I don't
0: recall that specific one.
2: I wouldn't mind tracking down the uh, Bruno on commentary on, a t- on TBS. Uh could, right. be, in- could be interesting. Um, I sense that they were building to Sammartino being in Ron Simmons's corner at Halloween Havoc, since Cactus Jack would be in Barbarian's corner. If they aren't building t- toward that direction, they should, since Sammartino would be far more valuable in that type of situation than in his currently announced role as a simply a co-host of the show with Shivani. Well, Meltzer, they didn't do that. So,
0: yeah, I don't know how
2: valuable he'd be either. I don't know. Well, cut him. well, we do know that Bruno could cut a great promo, but I actually think his, his main value for Havoc would have been cutting local promos for the Philly market.
0: Right.
2: You know, legend in that area, you know. Um, who knows if they actually did that, though. Or... Um, What else? There was a nice video piece on Kenzuki Sasaki coming in and Bobby Eaton and Brad Armstrong was a really good match. Um, so there we go. This is a weird little, like, kenzuki Suzaki push in 92. What's going on here?
0: Yeah, he always seemed to get a lot of hype, Um, even in 95 when they did Sonny Ono's deal. He was someone that I think they thought, well, I mean, uh, the, he had the three Musketeers, and I, I guess they thought that uh, Hosh wasn't going to get over based on their clash appearance. And I don't know, I guess they were trying out Sasaki, who was the young, you know, prospect at the time. So wow. maybe that was a rationale. He was the Muda of 1989, even though he was, you know, a different character, but that kind of young, up on the rise type guy.
2: Tony Atlas has been talked about. Coming in for the role that Butch Reed was originally supposed to fill. What do, what do you think about that idea? Yeah,
0: uh, don't sound too good to me.
2: <laughs> Tony Atlas in '92, uh, Robert.
3: I guess I'd prefer that to the poor guy being homeless, which is what supposedly was the case wow. before Saba Simba.
2: <laughs> God, <laughs> but
3: other than that, no, I can't. I can't, in all good conscience, think that Tony Atlas belonged.
2: I will. I will say. Where was he? Where was he working on one of those yearbooks, Chad? Was it like
0: ICW? Up in uh, I was up in Robert's neck of the woods, upper state New York. I
2: mean, there was some rinky-dink promotion, but I do remember his promos not being bad.
0: Yeah, his promos were pretty good in 1990. He faces Onita. He's the ace the old heavyweight champion of the promotion, as uh, Paul Lee too.
2: Super Invader has been given notice. Anyone remember who that was?
0: Hercules. Yes, that yeah. was uh, Hercules.
2: Herc. Yeah. Yep. And uh, does he end up back in WF? Does he work like a random so. Royal Rumble or something like that? No.
0: Maybe, but I think he's pretty much done as a regular performer is not Isn't
2: isn't he one of the the king's court or something in the Survivor Series? Oh
0: God! Well, have they did they ever figure out who was the king's knights or whatever? One, one like, of them.
3: One of them. It's um.
2: very Barry Horowitz. Yeah.
3: Greg Valentine, and Jeff Gaylord, pre-bank robbery. Jeff Gaylord.
0: uh, But I thought the contention was it was actually Kane instead
3: of Gaylord. I've heard that, too. I've heard Kane. I just feel like that's something, since WWE has shown no hesitation to mention Isaac Yankum and the Christmas Creature and some of his other crazy, idiotic New Diesel... Gimmicks. They, pr- if that were the case, they'd have brought that up re- fairly recently. Because if why, if, if you're not ashamed of fake diesel, you can't be ashamed of much. Right.
2: Six wrestlers, including Sting, Rick Rude, and Ron Simmons, were all fined one thousand pounds. wasn't sorry dollars for work not being up to par. So there we go. Bill Watts <laughs> is basically just fining guys for not working hard enough. <laughs> oh,
1: <wow.
2: laughs> That's pretty funny. Um. Yes. So there we go. Um, yes. So that's, uh, the October the 5th. Uh, let's see what else, um, is going on. Uh, pr- pretty, uh, funny stuff here. I'll hold on let's actually get to the, I did say this was a bumper. of melts, isn't it? There's tons and tons of them. Um, Things continue to be in a state of continual flux in WCW. It appears based on television uh, taped on uh, taped through uh, October the 16th, which is one week before the card, that the top matches will be, aside from Simmons and Barbarian, Rude Chono and Sting Roberts, Rude working twice, defending the US title against Nikita Koloff. Well, we know what happens there. For those in this area, we'll be having How Do We Have a Get Together here on. Uh, October the 25th. So that's Melton giving a call out to JDW and co to have a little get together. Uh, (laughs) They did an angle to set up the return of poorly dangerously who was scheduled to return uh, in October at the Gainesville tapings. Uh, Bill Watts came out on the center stage tapings um, while rude and Medusa were doing an interview and asked rude if dangerously was still his manager and uh, Rude beat around the bush before finally saying that he was. So, I guess more on this in a bit. Um, the Omnicard for October the 11th was cancelled after a disastrous house last time. Tony Atlas <laughs> debuted as a heel in the Butch Reed slot as Barbarian's tag team partner. Did, oh, did yeah, I- that's
0: right. I think Tony Atlas is on the uh, dark match here.
2: Did anyone know no, that? No, he's not. Did anyone know that Atlas worked, actually did work here? Uh, No doubt being groomed for some matches with Ron Simmons. He's using a swinging full Nelson submission. Also debuting was Robbie Walker, who I suspect is Hurricane Walker from ICWA, working as a tag team partner with both Shane Douglas and Tom Zenk in squash matches. Others on the way in are Johnny Gunn, who we'll see in a bit, who may form a tag team with Zenk, and Chris Benoit, who is currently scheduled to appear on the October the 27th TV tapings before going back to Japan for the November tour. A guy with an auto racer gimmick got a tryout, although I'm not sure who it was. Uh, Michael Hayes is officially no longer with Arne Anderson and Bobby Eaton, with no explanation. So there we go. Um, Yes. And... Oh, here we go. More Jimmy Garvin news. Jimmy Garvin apparently got his $180,000-ish contract buyout payment over the past few days. If that's the case, that has to be a sign that TBS has something of a long-term commitment and any rumours of this company's impending doom appear to be unfounded. Realistically, if the company was going to pull the plug at any time next year, it would be the the higher-ups agree to pay Garvin so much money to get out of the contract and save them what wouldn't be a dime, but in fact cost them. I just can't believe that they didn't want Garvin so much that they gave him that money up front. Seems mental, in my view. When they're trying to slash costs, I would have kept. I would have just kept Garvin doing jobs. What do you reckon, Chad? Yeah,
0: That's, that's actually what I'd have done. Just jobber status.
2: Yeah. Um, WCW lost its television in Richmond on the CBS station, which carried WCW JCP for the past 30 years. That's a pretty big deal. Richmond was a huge market for them. Um, yes. And, um, yeah, October the 19th, still going here. Um, and let's have a look. Jake Roberts did his first jobs since coming in losing to Sting in a lights-out match at house shows this past week. After doing the jobs, Roberts pulled out the snake and teased a breakup with Cactus Jack. The gimmick was that Sting would wrestle Cactus Jack in Lumberjack matches, and if he won, he'd get a, light, a lights-out match with Roberts, who he also what
0: beat. was a lights-out match?
2: Hmm. This is something I... I, when I, when I, I remember... That, Ivan Koloff used to have a ton of them against Dusty back in like the early eight, like late seventies and stuff like that. Don't know. You
3: think, it, you think it's a last man standing?
2: Mm, maybe. No.
3: Same idea.
2: No idea. I've never seen a light match. A uh, lights out match. So
3: oh.
0: we're getting some great. Uh, oh boy. Well, I tried to look on Yahoo Answers and you can imagine the type <laughs> of response. Uh, it looks like it's essentially uh, no holds barred as the... the uh, I mean, because it says Superstar's complete blindfolded, but that that's Prince of Darkness. So The,
2: the, the Paul E. stuff in this booking seems all over the place. He's returned back to the tapings, did an interview, which runs on TBS on Saturday... Dangerous, he basically said that the Dangerous Alliance, who are Rude, Austin, Anderson, and Eaton, are still together, and gave some reason why they hadn't been around. During the interview, Tony Schiavone says something to the effect that Rick Rude wants to talk with Paul, and Paul simply walks off. What is the paul stuff? It's such a mess, this stuff. Like, wh- wh- what's the deal with Paulie around this time? It's just, he's been away and then he came back, and the Dangerous Alliance are kind of together, but they're not. Very confusing.
0: Yeah, well, he... He's at odds that's what it is
2: it 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 just reminds me of like the the late day of the late days of the jtex corporation where it's just like is this band still together, or well, you know that weird pe- I, yeah weird...
0: yeah i mean well they're they're phasing him out, and that's because of i think behind the scenes issues
2: do, do, do you remember that weird period where Arne and Tully had buggered off to uh be the brainbusters and w f and Flair and Wyndham were still being managed by Hiro Matsuda. Such a weird, yeah. like... Anyway, um, Michael Hayes will be producing a new theme tune for all major WCW wrestlers. This is a good use of uh, his contract, isn't it? Uh, this apparently includes a new theme music for guys like Ron Simmons, Sting, and Johnny B. Badd, who don't need new music. <laughs> so there we go. Yeah, Sting and Johnny B. Badd essentially do not need new music, do they? Um, (laughs) Dory Funk Jr. has been hired to scout for new talent did you know about this? no (laughs) why? I (laughs) I don't know they need new talent uh, you know Dory's got a lot of connections in the business and is a legend Um, add Tex Slashinger to the list of wrestlers who are headed in and Mm. I know he definitely comes (laughs) Um, Tony Atlas looked terrible in his TV debut and apparently look look no better at the house shows. But on Tuesday, did an interview challenging Ron Simmons, which looks likely to be at the Clash um, in November. That does not happen, does it? I have no memory Ah. of Tony Atlas being in WCW at this time. None at all. Anyway.
0: Yeah, he's in that match.
2: Tony Atlas is in the Clash match. Yes. My mind is blown. I have literally no memory (laughs) of that at all. We we will have Tony. coming up hercules is gone uh greg valentine walked out on monday rather than do a four minute job on tv for sting it isn't that valentine refused to do the job as much as he got the new booking sheet and saw his name wasn't on it for any dates so he decided why do the job when it appeared that he was finished up either way so greg walked out what what happens to greg valentine now
0: i think he was working just regular indies and stuff
2: like forever like for the next decade basically
0: yeah i mean just doing the special you know former wwe superstar wf superstar or whatever he does have
2: a random few dates like in 95 and like like he doesn't he, he crops up here and there doesn't he in the monday night wars does it does he have a shot versus brett at one point uh not
3: brett but he does face savage on nitro and 96 that's I remember that's that.
2: that's, uh, that's what i'm thinking of who is it who faces Brett then? Is it Bundy, Buddy Landell, someone like that?
3: Yeah, uh, he did have a run, but I don't know if he took on Brett. I know he took on Ahmed Johnson. I'm not proud of the fact that I remember that. But
2: <laughs> Dick Slater will be gone in a few weeks. <sighs> Vinny Vegas is getting a new lease as he and Diamond Dallas Page are going to work a B-team program in November with Van Hammer and Marcus Bagwell. So, what else is happening? A new tag team debuted... As the mask, Shanghai Pierce, and Tex Schlesinger. Um, now, I've got fond memories of Shanghai Pierce and Tex Schlesinger because they're basically on every single Saturday night ever that I can remember. So, and, any memories of those two guys?
0: Yeah, they were good uh, Slugfest guys. I mean, we'll see them coming up pretty good uh, throughout 1993.
2: Um, Johnny Gunn debuted as well and was said to have looked pretty bad. Um, so, there we go. And we're going to see Johnny Gunn as well. Um, crowds this past week um, drew 2,450 in Springfield. Um, yes, R. Anderson, Barbarian. Barbarian's mystery partner who would have been Tony Atlas. So we're up in Atlas. Hold on. Has Tony Atlas been fired? I, I, I'm,
0: no, he, no, no, no. What happens is it becomes Atlas, Barbarian, and Cactus.
2: Right. Okay. Fine. Okay, uh, in Chattanooga, Jake Roberts no showed, and he was in the main event, which caused some minor problems at the building with people wanting refunds. Refunds were offered at the beginning of the show, uh, but many big time, big name no showed suicide to begin with. Why is Jake Roberts no showing places? Is Jake in a bad uh, period of his life at this point? Guys, do you know? What
3: I've heard, and I mean, again, Jake is, you know, I've. I've this is on Jake's DVD, so take it with a huge grain of salt, is that um, the original contract he was offered by Fry and what he got paid by Watts is a massive difference in terms of how much he was offered. And that's why he says this run was so short. So, you know, going back to, like, Stampede and doing this when he was feuding with Sylvester Ritter, Jake's a guy that, if he doesn't want to be there, tends not to show up.
2: Right, so I mean, he's basically turning grand, turning down a grand. That's the upshot of it in his mind, because he's going to pay. We saw he was getting paid one thousand dollars a night. So him no showing is basically him saying, "Well, I'm not going to get out of bed for the for the grand." Essentially, um, okay. There's a lot of scuttlebutt about different promoters wanting to join the NWA. By NWA bylaws, as long as a promoter has been in operation for one year and doesn't have a felony on their record, they have to be admitted to the NWA for a $500 lifetime membership fee, which seems a very small amount of money. (laughs) The current NWA board of directors, as elected at the last convention, were Bill Watts, Senji Sakaguchi, and Steve Rickard. The NWA champion is decided by the vote of the board. Any NWA member promoter has the right to get dates of the champion. Talk is that Jim Cornette and Dennis Coraluzo are talking about joining. And if and when Jim Crockett opens up a promotion, when his no-compete clause against Turner runs out, out, he'll join as well. So there we go. Um, I think the NWA are basically just dead in the water here, aren't they?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, they, they try to revitalize it, and then Jane Douglas throws it in the throws can. It, and
2: throws and, her in the bin, yeah. yeah. I remember
0: Clark, that. loses his shit, and you can hear more about him on the 605 podcast every week. They do a Dennis of the Week segment, so.
2: Yes. Um,
0: Quite a character.
2: Larry Zabisco returned to the ring, um, and did a job for Flamingo. So there we go. Scotty is still <laughs> knocking around. Mondo, Mondo Clean had a tryout before yeah. going to the WWF although no, nobody was impressed with him and that's Damien Demento you said so yes. there, there we that go
3: Parv I know you're a, a big fan of Vince on commentary if you ever get a chance to find I think it's on a Superstars uh, Damien Demento's first squash match <laughs> if you ever want to hear Vince McMahon basically questioned by the end of it why the heck did I hire this guy on <laughs> com- on commentary? Like when he wins with a knee drop, and Vince is like, "And oh, that's a interesting finish." Yeah, it's it's quite hilarious to literally listen to this guy be fired on the air.
2: Wow, D- doesn't he play Max Moon, or is that a different guy? Oh, that was Paul no. Diamond. was Dying. originally
3: Conan, and then he shot it yeah, down. Yeah. And then it became Paul Diamond,
2: right? Who was okay. Cato
3: in the Orient Express,
2: and also himself. Kato. Cato,
3: Cato. Cato.
2: <laughs> I, I apologize. Sorry. No, that's the that's, that's the way um, Lord Lord Al would always say it. <laughs> oh, that's right. Kato. <laughs> so anyway, <And> Cato. <laughs> um, <laughs> finally, we got to see Eric Watts wrestle. Athletically, he's okay. He's not embarrassing, as no- some notable Sons of Wrestlers has been, but he lacks inherent charisma and obviously is nowhere near ready for what they are pushing him into. Now, I would question all of those comments because I think Eric Watts is one of the most embarrassing wrestlers I've ever seen. So, there we go. We'll see him in a bit. And, finally, fans, we are at the point. where we are at the review in one of the longest-ever Meltzers ever.
0: All right. I mean... I guess we have a few more of these, but I mean the Watts error is very interesting, so
2: It is. Yeah. Kinda we-
0: kind of bear with us. I mean it's it's uh we we sorta of wanna give his entire roadmap from him coming on board to when he
3: was long ago.
2: Yeah, but it's turning into between the sheets at this point, isn't it? Yes.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>.
3: <laughs> uh two not to make it longer, but two things I looked up. Uh, during this, that our reader, uh, listeners may want to know, readers, uh, a Lights Out match apparently is just a anything goes match. I found some promos for him from the early 80s for various southern promotions. And far from retiring, believe it or not, Hercules was actually a New Japan tag team champion in 93 for four months.
2: Who, who was his partner? Uh, Scott Norton. Oh my God! Okay, I'm just
3: kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Hercules is in '93 is hitting it big in Japan, but I guess apparently he That's did. It, yeah,
0: hit- oh yeah, yeah, that is right. I have seen some of that because Norton faces Sting around that time, and Hercules was hanging out. That that is true. I, I just I can't
2: I mean because Hercules is so bad, even in like 1989, 90. He, like he's so done already by that point. I him in '93 is just like. Oh yeah, it's like JYD turning up in when we saw him, Chad. It's just ridiculous, you know. Anyway, yeah,
0: they're basically like the crap. They're they're like the bathroom break match when during the New Japan uh, War stuff going on.
2: My God, okay, and um, I'll just uh, trail this before we uh, go to our uh, long-awaited commercial break here. But um, the readership of uh, the Meltzers gave Halloween Havoc a thumbs-up rating of 7.2% and a thumbs-down rating of 87.6%. So let's, nice. let's see how close uh, to them we are when we, re- when, we, when we return.
1: Promotional consideration paid for by the following. What's up, everybody? This is Kevin Kelly. Make sure you check out every episode of The Kevin Kelly Show right here on The Place to Be Nation placetobenation.com The Kevin Kelly Show Every episode is a winner At least we hope Placement Nation's Justin Rosero here. In addition to the Kevin Kelly Show, we have a ton of great podcasts available to you on iTunes and PlacementNation.com. You can check out Scott Criscolo and me on the Mothership, the place to be podcast, with our famous Vintage Vault pay-per-view reviews. PTBN also covers current day wrestling with main event, Mission Indie Possible, and our monthly pay-per-view reaction shows with immediate feedback on WWE, NXT, and Ring of Honor super shows. And we live wrestling's past with our monthly pay-per-view rewind series, led by Ben Morse, and the Dangerous Alliance Wrestling Podcast as we dive into various subjects in in the form of exercises and games. We got sports covered too with the Sports Evolution Mega Show with Scott. Dr. G, Cowboy and Cowboy Senior, the Kings of Sport led by Live Audio Wrestling's godfather Nate Milton, as well as the NBA Team Podcast and the TJ McLoon Show. PTBN tackles pop culture and irreverence with Richard and the Mailman, the Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular. And if you like a hybrid of all of this in list form, check out Jordan Duncan's Rank and File. All of these shows are available on PlaceVNation.com, where we cover pro wrestling sports, movies, comics, plus tournaments, and more. We want to thank our friends at Bonehead's Wing Bar in West Warwick, Rhode Island and Fall River, Massachusetts, and Scott keats blog of doom be sure to follow us on facebook twitter instagram and tumblr as well place the only place to be in your pop culture world this is parv and i'm here to
2: tell you to listen and subscribe to the pro wrestling only place to be nation podcast network that's the pwo ptbn podcast network where you'll find a ton of in-depth shows done by hardcore fans. We've got Chris Zelmer's One Two Punch of Exile on Bad Street and with David Bickens fan, Smash hit Between the Sheets. We've got Wrestling Culture with Dylan Hales and Dave Musgrave, Goodwill Wrestling and the reaction shows with Good Old Will from Texas. We got This Week in Wrestling with my man Pete and Johnny Sorrow. Stephen Graham and Tib Livingston's Pro Wrestling Super Show, Tag Teams back again with Kelly and Marty Slees, and a ton of other great shows too. And of course, there's Titans of Wrestling and Where the Big Boys Play with yours truly and some dude from down south called Chad. PWO, PTBN, Podcast Network. Well, uh, welcome back, everyone. Uh... And we're finally going to reach the review of Halloween Havoc now. Uh, Just before I do that, Robert, it's been so long since we've had a guest on. I forget my manners sometimes. Do you have anything to plug or anything you'd like to uh, have if people want to reach you? No,
3: unless uh, it's totally unwrestling wrestling related. But if anyone's ever going to travel to Boston, I recommend looking up the Ghosts and Gravestones tour. It's a uh, historical slash horror-themed tour that... I've uh, now joined as an employee, and uh, there's going to be a new podcast soon. Uh, believe it or not, Johnny Sorrow and I are going to do one that's going to cover basically the goal is to look at every surviving complete episode of Memphis TV, wrestling, obviously, and um, whether it's the Louisville show, the, the Evans, you know, different shows that are out there, and look at it not just as wrestling, but as a television product. So that's hopefully going to start up reasonably soon.
2: Great, and that's exactly what the wrestling world needs is another Johnny Sorrow vehicle. I'm joking, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> uh, how, you, how, how do you feel about that, Chad, as the podcast master of a uh, 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 place to be? <laughs> yeah.
0: It's, it's uh, in development. You know how the uh, TV executives order pilots. That don't necessarily mean they'll come on your uh, TV in the fall, but
2: but uh, we've ordered the pilot and we'll see how it comes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so, uh, let's get into Halloween Havoc then. Um, first of all, uh, we get Bruno uh, San Martino who's with uh, Tony Schiavone here and um, we go quickly from that into a, a little segment where the Barbarian you know, the Barbarian of Powers of Pain Fame is being trained by Cactus Jack. Um, Now, I have no memory of this. Like, I've seen this card multiple times, and I have no memory of this deal with Cactus Jack training the Barbarian. Uh, Any thoughts on this as an angle to build up Barbarian as the world title challenger?
0: I mean, I I guess they needed to do everything they could, but this wasn't much, you know. (laughs) I mean, I didn't see him as a threat. To be the world champion,
2: Robert Cactus Jack, trained by the <laughs> Barbarian.
3: <laughs> the guy sounds like Grover. You know, you, you can't let him be his own mouthpiece. That would be a a disastrous experience. He, he really does. So you know, Cactus Jack can talk. He's injured at the time, although he's still working tags. He's got nothing to do. So oh, this this makes sense. I don't have a problem with this.
2: And now Missy Hyatt is at a outside a changing room, as she usually is. What's she wearing tonight? What do you think of this outfit, Chad?
0: I, I thought it was kind of like a Cleopatra type get-up. I, I don't know. Uh, but, I, you know.
2: So, so Robert, Not complaining. I, Robert, I teased this earlier. Could Trish Stratus have pulled this off?
3: <laughs> I, I suppose so. I don't know. <laughs>
2: How would you go, do you think Missy Hyatt is, uh, you know, a pioneer for the divas of today? Uh, <laughs>
3: yeah, to an extent, I guess, did, the Missy never wrestled, correct me if I'm wrong, or at least not uh-huh. in anything that was even remotely close to serious.
2: <laughs> no, I don't think she yeah, did. Yeah,
3: nothing serious. <laughs>
2: okay,
3: yeah, I, a little bit to an extent, I guess, a, a younger woman who sort of, her selling point of sex appeal is relatively new in the eighties, so I guess to some extent, sure.
2: All right. Well, we'll be talking more about uh, feminism and female rights later on in this show. Um. Yeah, so, um. Yes. Uh, with did different- you
0: Did you hear uh, Bruno call it the Halloween Havoc?
2: I did. Yeah, Bruno. Yeah, I well,
0: enjoyed what, that.
2: What do you think of the value of Bruno here? Is uh. Tony's I, co-host.
0: <laughs> I mean, it's tough to say because it is brutal, but it one, it feels odd to see him in this type of environment as a host. Yeah. And two, I think you can really tell he probably don't really care much about the show that's going on.
2: Yeah. I, I also just think it's weird. he's such a WF guy, isn't he? Yeah, just...
0: that's what I'm saying. I mean, just the fact that he's there is so alien to begin with, but also... I mean, he, it's not like he's really, you know, pushing and giving some hardcore strategy about Pillman and Steamboat or anything either. So that's what it is. It's just odd to see him in a WCW atmosphere.
2: Now, Jim Ross and Jesse Ventura are our hosts for this evening. And Jesse, with the with the great Halloween line, what a mask you're wearing, he says to Jim Ross. And, of course, Jim Ross is just not wearing any costume at all. So quite enjoyed that old-school joke from jesse oh
0: um yeah um also also i forgot to mention this you know um bruno said ruta had to wrestle two matches tonight and if he wins he'll be the greatest of all time so i I guess bruno put in a gwe ballot
2: (laughs) well I, i think kelly was the high voter on bruno
0: Oh so, so, well, you know they're pals, so Kelly may have thought, <laughs> let me have this one, but yeah, I mean, uh I we can get into it throughout the show, but i I think Jesse and Ross at this show, it was pretty obvious they uh were not on great terms with each other, they were not having much interplay,
2: yeah yeah we will we'll get into that as as the show progresses. Um, one of the things that they do here is that they show, of course, on this show, you get the spin the wheel, make right. the deal gimmick. Um, and I didn't read all of throughout all of those essays I was reading by Meltzer He was constantly, constantly riffing on the joke of spin the wheel, make the deal. <laughs> like every other sentence is spin the wheel, make the deal, and that's like he was doing that all the way through when he was talking about the finances. I I cut it out because I just thought it was even too lame to read out. So. <laughs>
0: I love when Dave uh, finds a joke funny, because he will definitely drive it into the ground.
2: <laughs> um, but we actually, the camera pans over all of the possible gimmicks for the spin the wheel. Um, and I actually, like, in concept, it's pretty cool, I think. What do, what do you reckon, Robert?
3: I think it's a great concept. I mean, you know, you get... they. Did something similar to this years later and like when they went to Vegas on Raw, if I remember correctly, with almost all the matches. And it's a, it's a neat idea. It just so happened. I think it's actually, let me ask you guys a question. Spoiling a little bit. Was it a mistake to offer all those options when the final result you get is what it is? Would they have been better off lowering expectations by just announcing Coal Miner's glove match?
2: mm Well, uh Chad.
3: Yeah, I
0: think if you look at the options and going under the premise that they knew it was gonna be a coal miners club, um, I I would have just announced a stipulation. I mean, I think they wanted to do the spin the wheel, make the deal, they thought they had something clever there to sell and Halloween Havoc has, you know, always been kind of a thematic pay per view for them. But I mean, I, I wrote down all these, and you had I Quit, Barbed Wire, Cage. You had some cool-looking stipulations, and Coal Miner's Glove kind of doesn't fit that motif. Well, uh, I, an I, odd
2: d- I mean, I did have a really odd thought to, when I was watching this, because obviously the show is in Philly, okay? as will become really obvious as the show progresses, and also he, uh, the, the ECW hat guy is sitting right there in the front row as well. Um, but... One weird thought that occurred to me was, did they have coal miners in Philly? Because clearly they had the whole coal miners glove match in mid south, and in that context, it kind of seems a bit badass. It sounds like you know those glove step matches they have, like obviously the famous one is the the DBRC Duggan one, which is the multi steps, but they had glove matches before that, and they didn't seem that lame, did they? But I actually wonder—is that because there were actually coal miners sitting there in Oklahoma or in Tulsa or whatever? Um, whereas in Philly, it just seems like random to say coal miner's glove. Any thoughts on that? I mean, I just
0: yeah, I would think more Pittsburgh.
2: Exactly, um, what I was thinking.
0: Yeah, more. That's more your blue collar.
2: Yeah, I. So I was just thinking maybe that like smoky like. Uh, Philly crowd would have just been like, that's the wrong crowd to give a coal miners Yeah, I to. mean, and
0: that's that's the other thing. I mean, we're right on the uh, brink of ECW starting to kind of flourish itself off some of the shows that were going on up in uh, Joel Goodhart and stuff. I mean, that stuff had been going on in Philly, so Coal Miners Club to me is just kind of a wimpy stipulation to pull out.
2: Yeah. And I, I'm just um, I'm just going down here to see if Meltzer's got anything on that, you know, on the stip itself um,
3: oh, I did read about that, I was reviewing the show and I read Meltzer's uh, and what he said was um okay, so they were banned from any that would have blood by Turner Broadcasting <laughs> which they have they,
0: first blood on the wheel which is hilarious <laughs> <laughs>
3: yeah it definitely makes you wonder if everything in wrestling is on the up and up right uh but yeah so i know that was banned anything with blood and then it was something like knowing that they figured that would be a lowered expectations and would not disappoint too much
2: right okay so th- why? so it was gimmick then it was always going to be coal miners glove is it is this the is this the idea yeah, that's what Meltzer said yeah okay because I, I remember I mean this is probably just a Scott Keith lie um, I'd imagine yeah. but I remember reading years ago that it, it you know that they didn't gimmick it and they just left it up to chance right right so,
0: that, that sounds like one of those uh,
2: and Steve myths Austin
0: this. was supposed yeah Steve Austin was supposed to win at final four 1997 that type of thing
2: yeah Teddy Biasi was meant to win WrestleMania 4, et cetera, you
0: know. Yeah, higher power and <laughs> all that
2: stuff, yeah. Okay, so the opener now. Now, get a load of this heel team. <laughs> Michael PSAs, Bob Eaton, Arn Anderson. Three of the all-time tag team wrestlers, all in one team. You've got Arn from the Horseman, Bob Eaton from the Midnight Express, Michael Hayes from the Freebirds. Bang, bang, bang. Jimmy Garvin sitting at home swimming in money against the Z-Man, Johnny Gunn, and Shane Douglas. (laughs) (laughs) Have you ever seen a team like a a six-man more loaded than that? More one-sided on on one side than the other? I mean, what did you think when when this match came up, Robert?
3: I... My thought is uh, Bill Watts has not been in the city of Philadelphia for about seven
1: years.
2: (laughs) What?
3: Uh, Because either it's some sort of very elaborate gag, which given the result doesn't really fit, or it was just, you know, and I'd love to know, because I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong, Philly is the city where uh, the dudes got booed out of the building once in WCW. So what time did Philadelphia kind of turn... Smarky as a crowd and pro
2: well, heel. Well, you see, this is the thing. We have watched Titan shows in Philly, okay, back in like 1980, when some smarky fans there were cheering for Zabisco over Bruno in 1980. <laughs> so I think it's always had a contingent of arse only fans, basically. Like I'm, I'm pretty sure Don Morocco's got a few cheers here and there, you know. Um, even right. back in those times, so I mean, like, the, like I don't know, Sarge got pretty good heel heat there, but there's a, like it's just always one of those crowds that's a bit funny, like that.
0: Valentine got a decent reaction.
2: He did, didn't he? Yeah, yep. and I, I think that was one of those times where Bob Backlund struggled to like he's over, but he's way more over in MSG than he is in Philly. Yeah.
0: Yeah, agreed.
2: So, yeah, I think they were always a bit like that. Um, so I don't know when the actual turning point would be. And I haven't watched um, WF Philly shows in the, from the late 80s much. Have you, Chad?
0: Not just a, a very sporadic, probably. I don't know who would be the person to point to for that, though, because actually, I mean, it seems like Hogan was kind of somebody that... Um, was i guess immune to that type of backlash at yeah least and well i'm
2: thinking like i've probably seen uh dbrc savage but they like they cheer a guy like savage you know what i mean whether he was face or right heel.
0: the same with like a piper Orndorf that I, when that yeah. feud i don't know if that came through there um
3: Ooh.
0: interesting to think about but yeah I, I think just in general philly's always kind of been a uh a little different from the uh, story that they're trying to portray a bit as a crowd overall.
2: Yeah. I mean, there were other ones. I mean, sometimes Baltimore, sometimes Chicago, you see, um, can be badly behaved sometimes, you know, but, uh, Philly is by far the most obvious one, I think. Um, any others you can think of, Chad? Those are the towns I'd. Like.
0: Oh, I mean, currently I'd say Toronto. I mean, the, I I think the two, Biggest towns like current for WWE are actually Toronto and Chicago, and they run Chicago that, a good bit. That
2: show the other night was at Chicago, wasn't
0: it? Yeah. We're taping this the day after payback, and it was at Chicago. They do a pay per view in Chicago every year, but they always, you'll at least get one of the, you know, this is a crazy crowd that Vince said last night or one of those type uh, comments. Yeah. And I mean, they don't run Toronto at all, they haven't had a major show there. And,
2: Ears. Yeah, see, the thing is, is that the Chicago, back in the day, were quite well-behaved crowd. But if you look at the type of guys they were cheering, you know, the Crusher and Dick the Bruiser were kind of bad guys turned good type thing. Right. You know, your
0: rough neck baby
2: yeah. faces. Yeah. Anyway, um, Shane Douglas looks greener than grass in this match, and uh, Jesse Ventura calls him a right-wing Republican. What did you make of this comment? <laughs> uh, I,
0: I had, a, I, yeah, he said he doesn't. He says the one thing he doesn't like about Shane Douglas that he looks like a right wing Republican. <laughs> I
2: know you can hear Jim Ross literally scrambling. <laughs> I,
0: I, just such a, I mean, why even bring that up? You, how are you going to defend Jesse with this? <laughs> <laughs> well, you see, I mean, this, what does that have to do with the match that's going
2: well, on? What I was intrigued about with this comment is that, what did Jesse think in his head? Was he thinking that that is like calling him a right-wing Republican was actually the babyface thing for the audience? I don't know. Any ideas, Robert?
3: Yeah. I think a lot of times in this run, Jesse just, he says what he feels like saying, and at some yeah. point he feels like ripping on Shane Douglas for being, I mean, Jesse's a libertarian basically.
0: And um, I don't know if
2: he was back then, but I know he was in 2000, and it is now. Yeah, and, I don't know. Uh, and he felt like saying it, I don't so. <laughs> Shane Douglas. <laughs> Shane Douglas looks like a right-wing Republican. Ridiculous. <laughs> and, of course, the heel fans cheer on in this match. Why don't you break it down for us, Chad?
0: Well, this is... Uh... This is quite an it I mean, I would recommend watching this match, even though I didn't think much of it. I mean, Arn immediately gets cheered for beating down Johnny Gunn. Huge pop for Eaton's offense on the Zed Man. (laughs) Jesse, you know, even beyond the Republican line, he was certainly, you know, talking about how many pops the heel team was getting. And Ross was kind of no-selling that, and he would keep bringing that up. Uh, Zink comes back to huge boos they start working on bobby's leg a little bit um anderson hits a back suplex the hills offense i thought you know just the hills offense in this match was so much more dynamic than the face team which is such a contrast to what the story should be but yeah i mean the, the the hill team was doing suplexes and tagging in and out and some crispness and when the face team was on control, they just casually work over Bobby's leg a little bit. So it was awful. The uh, the hot tag to Johnny Gunn was <laughs> so quiet when he got the hot tag. Um. And but I was shocked that Johnny Gunn hits the Thez press on Michael Hayes and wins.
2: I couldn't believe that either.
0: I I, I could not believe that they won. This match against that heel team, but oh, overall, I mean, I gave it a star and a half. I didn't think <laughs> it was anything at all more interesting for the crowd dynamic and Jesse's commentary uh, than anything. In the ring. I
2: I just got a pang of excitement for when Eric Watts come in because Jesse is so badly behaved during the Eric Watts. Run. <laughs> uh, Robert, any thoughts?
3: I I actually really liked this as a, as an example in reverse psychology, maybe not as a match, but um. There's little things I noticed, like when Art and Johnny Gunn lock up, Ard actually pinches his cheeks. Uh, he takes Johnny Gunn like to shop, look how cute you look, and then just beats the heck out of him right after that. Uh, and Johnny Gunn comes back with one of the worst drop kicks I've ever seen, which probably didn't help. Barely gets him with half a foot. Um, I just loved watching Art Anderson sort of react and sort of struggle with his inner heel, and then at some point when he hits that, that clothesline spot where they take control and plays for the crowd, where you can tell he's just going, you know what the hell with it, there's nothing I can do. These people are going to cheer me. I might as well enjoy myself. And um, I thought that was really good. I think there's a moment later on when they're doing, um, Johnny Gunn is going for, or not? it's Zink, I think, is going for a suplex on Arn and Bobby clips him, but they're a little out of position, and so it takes a little longer than it would have. And I just kept thinking one of my, one of my fascinating projects that will never happen because you can't time travel is um, I'd love to see if the two companies switched production teams just for a week, what it would have looked like. There's so many times where I feel like WCW, these little things that a better director could have fixed instantly that WCW never had. I was wondering, like, yes, you guys a question. I'm a firm believer in, um, unless you have a vested reason not to, always ending the first match with the crowd happy. It's just a a belief of mine as a booker, unless there's some, so not a booker, but I mean if I was, there's some, so unless you have some compelling reason in the story you're telling for the show not to. And I'm just curious, would you guys, if you were Bill Watts, have called an audible when you saw that reaction and gone, okay, you know what, change the finish, switch, switch who goes over?
2: Interesting. Chad?
0: Yeah, I I, well, I I just can't imagine that he wouldn't have thought this would have been the case. I mean, I don't I don't know. It's it's almost like there was like a, a an agenda. It, it's, it's just come on. I mean, look at this heel team and the storied histories that all three of these guys have and then you were throwing out these three white meat baby face yeah. uh Tag guys that uh, don't have any personality except that they're pretty boys uh, it's it should have been this should have been kind of prophesized i mean they shouldn't have been surprised at all but yeah i mean they I, the heels definitely should have won from a booking standpoint and to, from a crowd standpoint
2: i just can't get over the i just can't get over the team the z man johnny gun and shane douglas <laughs> it's it's preposterous. It's ridic- I mean, Johnny Gunn, I I have no memory of him at all. I mean, I'm guessing he's gone. Like a cup of coffee here, right?
0: Yeah, and then later on becomes Salvatore sincere, but not a not a storied run in the uh, wrestling profession.
2: God. Um. One thing I will say is that um. I Arn seemed pretty happy to lap up these cheers. Uh, <laughs> was Was this uh, Matt D might call it using his powers for evil? But I, I actually thought that on out Michael Hayes, Hayes here, Hayes was not kind of, you know, kind of playing up to the face pops.
0: Yeah, well, I I guess the Tomahawk chop wouldn't have worked in uh, Philadelphia.
2: <laughs> I actually really enjoyed this. I mean, I I guess I was looking for, I've been looking for stuff to get me off the, you know, an, like, just coming off the GWE stuff, yeah. which is so, you know at this point so like furrowed brow and serious and so on and uh this was a good antidote to all of that you know total bullshit match and um you know the Philly crowd just completely I mean a huge pop ram uh when he when he hit that uh move that you talked about and as terrible as the face side was, um, in everything they did, really, especially when they were on offense, when you've got three pros like Arn, Eaton, and Hayes to carry things, I was pretty entertained by it. So, I mean, I don't know about a star rating. You Probably like two stars, something like that. Yeah. Um, anyway, um, Harley barges past uh, Missy now to get into the locker room that she's not right to go into. Now, I couldn't, like, what was this all about, this Harley Race barging past, like, what was Missy trying to do? She was trying to get to see Rick Rude, was it, or? I didn't really get.
0: Well, this is kind of what we talked about, it. I think, on our last show, Parv. It's like, you understand Missy's persona is kind of this ditzy girl, but it's never been conveyed well enough whether... She's trying to have sex with Rick Root or she's trying to find out what his game plan is going into the night, or I, I don't, I don't know. I mean, you don't quite know what what she's doing and why she's put in this position. I mean, from a from a production standpoint, it's like, why is this frankly horny girl always hanging out outside the locker room when we kind of need to know what's going on with the show?
2: Yeah, I I didn't really get what was going on here i mean i've got my own theory about why she wasn't allowed in and that is because rick rude had slipped shaving and harley was just kind of running into you know damage limitation like what's he gonna do and eventually they made made the decision to to lose
0: yeah straight out of tew
2: here We'll talk more about that later because it's something that upsets me greatly. (laughs) Stupid.
3: (laughs) I I think with Missy, I think what they were going for, and maybe I'm giving WCW way too much credit for thinking (laughs) and putting this much thought into it, is um, I think they were going for she wants to be like an ace reporter, but she still basically played as like the ditziest, dumbest blonde of all time. So none of the men take her seriously at all think that's the idea of the character
2: with 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 a hint of yeah i
3: mean i mean we saw her squeal when sting came up
0: on his motorcycle right
2: doesn't she have a line here though that like oh this is the only locker room i've ever not been allowed into type thing right which is obvious nonsense because she wasn't allowed into stan hansen's locker room either (laughs) <laughs> do you remember that
0: <laughs> yeah then when she did she got chased away <laughs> she back and dancing in his underwear
2: anyway Brian Pillman versus Ricky Steamboat now in a wet dream of a match on paper um, during which the Philly crowd proceeded a chant this match sucks and uh, I've written here was this the birth of current awful crowds trying to get themselves over right here because it's one of my least favorite things in all of wrestling. We saw it last night on that show where they were shouting, you can't wrestle, uh, Roman Reigns. uh, Here they were shouting, this match sucks sucks," at literally Brian Pillman and Ricky Steamboat. So, you know, how smart were these fans really is my question. (laughs) Uh, Robert, I'll let you take it away on this match.
3: Well, this was, I mean, I I didn't know I was doing play-by-play. This, um... I thought this was really good. Um, This match sucks chance. That was pretty short. And it it didn't strike me as being, you know, however many people are there, 15,000 chanting it in unison. Um, But this match to me had a very much a sort of your turn, my turn feel to it, but with some great stuff thrown in. And I love what you said earlier, Chad, about how this is where Pillman is sort of working out his heel character. Because you can see sort of the thought processes in the moves and how to work it. Uh, Some things I really liked in this match I noticed were um, the drop kick counter to Ricky going off the top rope. Although, from what you've now told me, did Pillman just cost himself the match technically when he did that? Because weren't drop kick, weren't top rope moves illegal for heavyweights? And so if he just let him hit it, he would have won?
2: Hmm. Or they may have just forgotten about it.
3: Or I'm meta-thinking this too much. Um, I love the chop exchange, even if you didn't get the real hard one, you know, that necessarily came in. I loved the thing that Ricky Steamboat does early on, where he drops a second time to let us know he's just faking, and then the second Pillman come in, wham, slams his arm down and works him over. Um, That was some great stuff. I didn't, the only objection I have to this match is they replay the finish. And that turns out to be a big mistake, because you can clearly see in the slow motion, and it's it's picking apart, I'm not criticizing Pillman or Steamboat, I'm criticizing whoever the director was, you can clearly see Pillman just throws himself into the, you know, it's the sunset flip off the top rope from Steamboat, Pillman reverses, then Steamboat reverses that, but you can see Steamboat isn't moving at all, and Pillman just throws himself into position to be pinned. And like, that's the sort of thing that in, in fast motion's not a problem, but in slow motion, uh, again, like, uh, I just one of the points I get back with WCW so much. Did these people who are running the show and directing not watch wrestling and not know you can't do that and show that?
2: Hmm. It's, it's, it's meant to be David Crockett's crew, isn't it? But are they still running yeah. this? It's still David yeah, Crockett, right? Yeah, part of it. Mm. Uh,
0: Jackie Crockett, I think. Well, I mean, David, too.
2: But... I mean, you'd think Jackie Crockett would understand wrestling, wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah. So yeah, well, it's an interesting question to to ask. Um, yeah, I I should have mentioned by the way, Malta gave that opener two and a half stars. So
0: yeah, that's a, that's a high rating
2: <laughs> for that match. sure. Um, yeah. what did what did you make of this one, Chad?
0: I actually really enjoyed. The, I agree with uh, Roberts, and down. Um, one one thing that I thought was cool about this match was. I mean, I did think like it was just a pocket that was saying this match sucks because both Vlad and that Guy were pretty into it on the front row.
2: Yeah,
0: um, and I I thought Steamboat, you know, Steamboat sometimes I think gets some mild criticism for being tone deaf. Like he should have been more fiery in WrestleMania three, other stuff. Um, and I thought he was kind of cagey here and being a little more vicious and then doing that spot that Robert talked about where he was outsmarting Pillman. So that kind of showed him as more of an aggressive, cagey veteran, um, you know, still within the babyface mentality, but... Not, you know, your hand slapping. I mean, it was, it was a stark contrast between the babyface team we saw in the first match to what we saw here, where it's like, okay, here's what a real babyface should present himself like, even with a crowd that may be wanting to, you know, set their own agenda. He was still able to put Pillman over well. Um, do some moves that I thought manipulated the crowd to get a better reaction for him as far as the chop exchanges and outsmarting Pillman, and it was for the betterment of the entire match.
2: There was a little bit of Jesse uh, Ross' direction that I did not understand here. Um, They were trying Brian Sucks at the start of this match, right? And Pillman is meant to be a heel now. And Jesse was trying to say, well, the crowd are chanting something, and doesn't he say something like, "I can tell you what they're chanting, but I wouldn't, I'm not allowed to, or something."
0: Yeah, he was like, "I could, I know what they're saying, but I can't repeat it." Was sort of the gist. I wonder. I, I mean, I don't. You couldn't pick it up, but I was wondering if there, you know it was like Brian sucks dick or something like that. or I,
2: I don't understand why Jim Ross was no selling the heel heat that Pillman was having. That's what that, that's the thing that I didn't really understand about that interaction. It seemed weird to me.
0: Well, they, yeah, I mean, they weren't on the same page this whole show, so. Mm. I, I went three and a half, though. I enjoyed this one a lot. I mean, i, I it, it's the shortest match of the night, which is kind of a shame, because I think with three or four minutes, um, it would have been, uh, you know, very, very good. But i thought i thought it was interesting and i thought it was a good kind of case but you know like you said that first match was nice as kind of a palate cleanser from gwe but this match was kind of cool in the wake of it too to analyze oh we're here you know his steamboat's doing some slightly different things uh to kind of in my eyes help his case as an overall performer and pad out his resume
2: yeah well melton went three and a quarter I would say about three stars is about right for this one. One um, one of the little bits of interest for me was uh, that you can see what's pairing the veterans with the younger talent. I mean, we've just seen that he, you know, monster veteran heel team against that pathetic, you know, rookie babyface team, and now you've got the younger guy Pillman learning to be a heel against the master babyface himself, Ricky Steamboat. So you can almost kind of see what's thinking. Through who he's going to pair up, um, which I think is quite interesting. Like you can almost see the the booking philosophy in a way. Um, sure. It's it's still dusty booking though, right? Technically making the matches.
0: Yeah, this
2: would been dusty. Yep. But I, I got this idea that Watts may have said, "Well, you know, put the young, put the the veterans with the younger guys uh, while they're learning their new roles." Type thing. Uh, I like the chops. I mean, Pillman's an underrated chopper. You know, I made that thread about who the top choppers are. Pillman's a guy you don't really... He's got one of the better reverse knife edges in, around this time, hasn't he? Um, as I saw, I quite like the stiffness of the chops in this match. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess you guys said it all. It was a good match. Uh, perfectly solid, in my view. Um, although they, they do have better ones, I want to say, these two together. Later on. Is that right?
0: Uh,
2: I don't know. I don't recall
0: them I'll, I'll, working I'll, I'll, together
2: much. I want to say there's another Pillman-Steamer match out there. Hmm. Um, or am I thinking about the Hollywood Blonde stuff, maybe? There's, yeah, there's some. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah, I mean, the Hollywood Blondes is prevalent with uh, Steamboat and Douglas. but um, yeah, And that's it, really good. We'll get to that.
2: Maybe that's what I'm thinking of. I've definitely seen these two in you know, other matches together.
0: Yeah, I uh, mean, I'm sure they probably had another singles match on uh, at least
2: one of the four syndicated shows so now we go over to um a bunch of japanese guys and uh chono is there and i i just love the fact that Hiro matsuta is like the sole representative of japan for us fans and has been for like fifteen years at this point um because it, i would i've actually been watching a little bit of like old florida and stuff and it's like Hiro matsuta is the only like the sole Japanese guy like he's bringing in like different imports all the time but he's the only one who will um front it up he doesn't really say much back in the early 80s either um so uh, Teddy Long is uh, in the interview role now here's another guy on the payroll basically doing nothing so we talked about the big broadcast team what happened to Magnum TA is he gone I don't remember he him. wasn't
0: on this show but um it's weird. I, I mean, they've got, Bru-
2: they got Bruno, they've got Teddy Long, they've got T.A. knocking around.
0: Yeah, and, Teddy uh, with his do-rag on.
2: And um, so basically the upshot of this is that they, they've chosen uh, Kenzuki Sasaki to be the ref for Chono. So there we go. The Senzaki push um, uh, continues. And now we go from this to Bill Watts with Tony Schiavone. And this is quite a long segment with Bill Watts now. I'm going to just go through the news items and then I'm going to t- ask you, each of you, what you thought of this. Because I, I honestly thought most of this was too much. First of all, Terry gordon has been suspended. Um, what happened to Terry Gordy? I will tell you. He quit the promotion that morning. Uh, not explain why he quit the promotion, but he did that morning. Uh, Because I was actually wondering, during the show, was this drug-related? Was this, you know... But apparently he walked out for some reason. Probably over a pay deal, I'd imagine. Or he wants to just go back to Japan. He does go back to Japan, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah,
0: he's back in Japan.
2: Um, So, yeah, Gordy's suspended. So they have to basically pull a quick one. And they've put um, Stunning Steve Austin in to replace him. Um, So he's going to be the partner for... Steve Williams against Dustin and Barry Windham, and then in another news item, Rick Rude has chosen Harley Race as his referee um, in this upcoming NWA title match. So, yes, uh, I and then and then on top of all of this, they have decided that Rick Rude is not going to wrestle twice tonight. Instead, he has picked Vader to be his surrogate. And if Nikita Koloff beats Vader, then Rude loses the US title, which is a terrible step. And then on top of that, Medusa is barred. So I I just thought this whole thing, there's so much stuff to take in doing this Bill Watts thing that I I honestly thought that the average viewer at home might be confused. Maybe I underestimate them, but Robert, what did you make of this Watts business? There's a lot of...
3: There's a lot of this from WCW and there's a lot of this from Bill Watts. I mean, I remember endless nitros with lengthy appearances by James J. Dillon or some member of the WCW executive committee or, or some lawyer who would just get in and talk for 10 or 15 minutes explaining all the things, you know, not to, not to turn this into a province sort of thought, but I think if you can't explain something with Jack Tunney in two minutes, it's too complicated and you need to think it through. Um, In general, I usually find Bill Watts, at least listening to him as an authority figure, kind of a bit of a blowhard.
1: But here, he was okay.
3: He was pretty good. And and this was, you know, if they don't want to, I mean, just think about, not to spoil the Rude-Chono match, but just think about how much worse that match would have been if Rude had already worked once. (laughs) So... Thank God that didn't happen. I mean, that would have been uh, that that would have been uh, yeah. That's a frightening thought to think about. So that's the right decision. And uh, Steve Austin not really having anything to do with this pay per view originally, which is kind of weird. He seems like a good partner for Steve Williams. Um, they have the same name, so why not? So you know, it's good decisions and just a little lengthy and something that I think could have been explained by the commentary team quickly and not taking up 10 or 15 minutes on a pay-per-view.
1: Hmm.
2: Yeah. I mean, Chad, any thoughts?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think this was too bloated. I mean, I do, uh, I guess disagree a bit with Robert and then I generally enjoy Watts's explanations in mid South. I think he did find some success with like the intertwining angles, uh, you know, Stagger Lee, D. B. I. C. Flair, Murdoch, uh, Gordy Williams, and UWF. But this, this seemed to kind of try to be like one of those situations where he would narrate this long, intertwining angle that was about to reach its climax, and it just felt flat, um, felt convoluted. It felt weird that you kept promising Roode had to wrestle twice, and he didn't. Uh, we we really kind of didn't get much of the decision-making and how they went with Vader, even though that was a good choice. But again, that brings up the issue, you know, why was, you know, Vader was your heavyweight champion two months ago. Well, why was he not booked on the show? So it, it's kind of one of those things where I do think for a regional territory, that type of storytelling and intertwining and, oh, this guy has come back to the promotion or this so-and-so went out and found whomever to be his partner kind of works but for a national promotion like wcw it feels like well you know what why did you not have these guys wrestling each other buddy i mean this is two of your top talent sitting on the bench and you're showing yourself as the owner you know the authoritative figure of wcw so what was going on
2: I mean, for me, I've got this PhD student at the moment and um, she, she was starting to bug me because she sent me these long emails and there'd be like four or five different things in the email. And I said to her, look, if there, f- if there are four or five different things and like one of them is you have to fill out this form and another one is I want to make a meeting and the, another one is, you know, talking about some other aspect of some something or other. I said I'd rather you legitimately send me four different emails with four different headings because having them all buried in the same email is too much for one message. And I felt that way about this Bill Watt segment, where it was li- literally too many different things to take on. It's like, well, well, now we're talking about the tag match, and now we're talking about the Rude and match, and now we're talking about Vader. And it's just like, I don't know, I just saw it was too much. Um, yeah. So. Anyway, we, we go from that into the Nikita uh, versus Vader uh, match now. That's one of those things I did think about this card, actually. If you look at the just the matches on the card, there's not a lot of fat on this card, Nor a lot of filler matches. They're all like pretty big feature, all pretty big matches, I think, like yeah. up, up and down the card. Um, and uh, as we to start this, Ole Anderson, in his senior referee role...
0: Oh, God. Talking about somebody needs to go away.
2: <laughs> makes a little cameo, and if two referees weren't enough later on, Ole <laughs> appears to bar Harley and Rude from ringside. And Jim Ross calls this collusion. So this is very hard to for me to process now because there are so many moving parts, but uh, Rude's manager is poorly dangerously, but is also Medusa, but also he's allied with Harley Race. Robert, can you untangle this web of intrigue for me? <laughs> any, um, any clues?
1: <laughs> let me see if I can remember
3: this correctly. From what I saw, I, I think the idea is your standard only. And- okay, let me see if I get this right. Is Oli Anderson is your standard troubleshooting enforcer who sort of favors the baby faces? My only question to this is, other than maybe a payday what really is Vader and Harley Race's motivation to help Root out here?
1: Yes.
3: Um, it just seems like an unusual thing that they would be, you know, the the character of Vader, at least how I would say, is to make it work, he can't be a million-dollar man type, to use your one of your favorites, part yeah. who yeah. colludes with other wrestlers and works with them all the time and is cooperative and... And, you know, he's part of this evil heel conspiracy. He kind of needs to be like on his own, this sort of monster that even the other villains are just a little bit frightened of. So I didn't like the idea of, of Vader coming in as someone's enforcer or minion well, I, or
2: I think the doing imbi- their bidding. I think the implication is that they've made, Harley has made a deal with Rude or with Medusa or Paulie or any of these people to be the ref in that match in exchange for Vader being in this match but it seems like Harley is putting up two things and Rude is giving nothing. This is what I don't get about the deal. It's like that side don't get anything and Rude gets the benefit of one getting out of the match and two getting a biased ref. Mental. Anyway, <laughs> just does makes no sense that part of the storytelling,
0: yeah, I mean I agree like Vader should be like what Brock is now. I mean he is your you know animal that's on his own he doesn't he has a mouthpiece and race, and that's it. that's the only guy he trusts
2: uh what about Jesse going on the old conspiracy theory on the Japanese side? <laughs> oh, <man. laughs> Oh, God. He doesn't trust Kenzuki Suzaki, does he?
0: No. (laughs) Um, Some old uh, military grudges (laughs) holding out for Jesse.
2: Uh, So, what did you think of uh, old 92 Nikita Koloff here versus Vader?
0: Well, this this match. Man, that. Oh, I don't even know where to begin. Well, we did get another Jesse and Jr. argument. Did you hear that's about the Super Bowl ring? That
2: was well, maybe. Re- remind me.
0: Well, he, uh, you know, Jr. was like, well, you know, Vader knows something about winning because he was with the Los Angeles Rams and he has a Super Bowl ring. And Jesse's like, the Rams have never won the Super Bowl, which is true. And then, you know, we're tries to call the match because he probably realizes he's wrong and Jesse again mentions it and you, I, there's like a moment of silence and I really think in that moment JR probably gave him a look of like just drop it because <laughs> it was it was bad and that, and that kind of carried over into this match because I don't, I don't know if it was just Nikita being sloppy or what was kind of going on here. But it didn't seem like these two guys were on the same page at some point. um, Some weird miscommunication. One of them was when Nikita goes for a back suplex. The choke slam looked awkward. And then Vader does a huge splash that uh, he comes right on top of Nikita's head. I did like outside where Vader clobbered Nikita with the chair and then got hit right in the face with a drink you can catch that. That was uh, interesting, but but overall, I, I mean, Nikita I didn't have high hopes for, but I thought he might could be fun in the Slobberknocker type match.
1: Yeah.
0: And they did it on the same page here. So, I, I went two and a half and Vader wins with a powerbomb that
3: looked kind of awkward, too.
2: Any holds, Robot? Yeah,
3: um, I, I gave it two and a half as well, actually. It's my lowest rated of the three so far. Um, I... There is something about Vader. I I absolutely love the guy. I think he's probably one of my 20 favorite wrestlers ever. But that he seems to get a free pass on, for whatever reason, with a lot of people. Which is almost every match I've ever seen of his, there are a few things that go wrong. And maybe that's he spent a lot of time in WCW and their camera crew couldn't fix it. I don't know. But even I'm thinking about that legendary, everyone loves the match he had with Boss Man at... um, was it Spring Stampede '94, Slam '94. I can't remember. Spring Stampede '94, and that has yeah. similar similar things here, where you know you're talking about that back suplex that goes terribly wrong, and then they immediately followed up with a snap suplex that goes totally wrong, where he can barely get him over, and it becomes sort of like almost That's like a DDT right. thing instead. The choke slam, where you're right, he doesn't even take it as a back bump. He just lands on his side and then sort of flops over, um, and the power bomb has a similar problem. I've heard. I heard going into this, when I sort of watched it for the first time in probably 10 or 15 years, whenever I, I saw this a, a year or two ago, that for the first time, this was like a burial of Nikita. That this is it for him in this run, or period, really. And is sort of bury you, get him out. I sort of see it as more like it's the monster versus the newer, bigger, badder monster. So it's sort of like Pam 2.0, and yes, I just compared Vader to Jenna Fisher. That's kind of strange, but... um, <laughs> and uh but nevertheless it's like you know as good as Nikita is Vader is better at every si- at all the same stuff and so just is able to beat him completely cleanly and with moderate i'd say modest difficulty as opposed to it being like a real challenging match but I kind of botches aside kind of liked that because I feel like especially with Vader just losing the title out of nowhere to Ron Simmons, and, you know, now what do you do with the guy? Because he's the same guy that just beat Sting, who's your, your biggest babyface for the last few years. You've got to rebuild Vader somehow, so having him take on a, a previous monster and just, you know, beat him pretty decisively seems like a good way to do it.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I prefer uh, Koloff in 92 to flat-top Nikita, Chad. Um, You're right. It did occur to me though that he's basically been a relic at this point since nineteen eighty seven. I I just think Nikita really has got such a weird career. Like he's he's massive in eighty five, he's big in eighty six, and then basically falls off a cliff and never never gets it. I mean, he's just a relic, isn't he? He just feels like he's completely yeah, I mean, this different. This
0: would be like if they brought Ron Garvin back in some
2: ways. Something like like he just feels like he's from a different time, and. Yeah almost like he just doesn't matter here. So, yeah, I mean, it's so I mean, it's a glorified JT. I mean, he's he's obviously not a jobber to the stars, but it is kind of the role he's in here. Like he's just going to put Vader over clearly. Um Right. Yeah, it was it was all right. I gave it t- two stars. I mean, I do take the point about Vader that he gets a pass and I I would be interested to in know if it was like Scott Steiner in this exact match with those exact same spots. If it would get a rougher ride from people reviewing it, you know, um, I wonder about that. Why do Why do you think Vader gets a free pass on those things, Chad? Just because he's cool?
0: Um, well, yeah, I mean, he's he's vicious, so it kind of his gimmick does play in reckless. But I think Steiner gets a pass on that too.
2: I mean, yeah. Well, I mean, we just
0: got done with a poll where somebody voted yeah, Steiner number one of all time. Well, I mean, Vader.
2: That let's face it. <laughs> so. Let's face it, Tenryu gets a pass on everything. I mean, yeah. you, you can't you can't execute I, shit. I, can I, I do
0: think, <laughs> in some regards, the way you present yourself that does matter with how far. I mean,
2: I, I don't want to say Tenryu is botchy, I, I, but like he is pretty botchy as well, isn't he?
0: Yeah, I, and I don't think. I guess it comes down to execution and how much execution. Is mattering less and less these days in our corner of the uh, IWC. But I also do think, in some regards, like the Tenru Choshu match at 1493 in the Tokyo Dome, I'm not someone that cares that much about execution. But in that match, like, I still enjoyed that match a good deal, but that was where the execution really prevented that match from what I thought was great. Yeah. Um, the, the execution restrained it. Um, so, so that's the only thing when it comes to execution that I get antsy on. I mean, I do think Vader, of course, though, it is with his persona. I mean, it's just seen as stiff, but, you know, there's that kind of out-of-control aspect can be... Um, appealing to watch. It is appealing to watch at times, but it also can create some shaky moments at other points.
2: Well, Meltzer went two and three quarters uh, on that, and he does say it destroys title credibility when a champion can pick someone else to defend their title for him. And I have to say, I agree. I'm really shocked that Bill Watts went with that as a booking idea. Why, why, why yeah, could... it seems, seems a little weird. I, I I remember being really bugged by that years ago, um that Rude wasn't defending his own US title. Well,
0: I mean all you'd had to done is Vader ask for a title shot if Rude wins. I mean I think even that would have helped it.
2: Just bizarre. But Okay, well anyway, let's 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 move on. Um because now we get a little bit of a promo uh with Doc. In an absolutely insane little little promo that he gives here, um, and the the upshot is that it doesn't really matter that gordy has gone because now the game plan is out of the window, and Dustin and Wyndham aren't going to know what's happening because Steve Austin is in the mix um, and Missy Hyatt uh, now has Dustin and Wyndham with him, and uh what what are all the belts? I'd lose tro- like how many belts do they have there? Is this
0: well, like... that's the it's the NWA and the WCW.
2: Oh, Christ, I mean, what's the point?
0: They unified them, but they didn't get rid of one of them.
2: No, uh, I, I, mean, I don't. I I know the Triple Crown is a big deal and all that, but I don't like the idea of having like loads of belts, <laughs> unless
1: it's the Triple I guess, Crown, I, guess. I
0: this might be a double standard, but I kind of do like it in Japan. Like when the great Sasuke had the eight belts or whatever, the Jake <laughs> round and everything. I, I thought that was a cool visual and when Ultimo Dragon would wheel them all out at WCW. so le- le- leg-
2: Legitimately, when they did when they first um, had those belts, I didn't see Dustin's second belt. So I was like, so hold on, they're tag champs and Wyndham's got a belt. Is that the... Um... What was that Western Heritage States title? Oh,
0: the Western States Heritage,
2: yeah.
0: It's in his closet if he needs it.
2: <laughs> Wyndham's still, Windham's still the Western Heritage State champ, right?
0: I don't believe he's been defeated for that. <laughs> 20, 30-year reign.
2: Okay, so it's Doc and Austin against Wyndham and Rhodes. And um, one little thing. Uh, two little Jesse notes here because he, Jesse's pretty funny guy. I think uh, this is a long match. Um, I really, really wanted Jim Ross to answer Jesse's Pee Wee Anderson question. I like, <laughs> he's <laughs> Ross does his typical call. Randy, don't call me Pee Wee Anderson, and Jesse's like, all right, I'll bite. Why? Why? <laughs> why don't we call him Pee Wee? Completely no sold. Complete like Ross just completely <laughs> ignores him and goes starts calling the match. I actually hate Jim yeah. Ross sometimes. I'm completely on Jesse's side here. Why can't he just answer oh, the question? Come on. Why can't he answer the question yeah. about Pee Wee Anderson? Why, did,
0: why is Jesse bringing up you know right, right wing Republican? I mean I I think <laughs> like both of them were awful here. I'm not defending either, but uh,
2: and then and then in classic Jesse in late 1992 now. Complaining about the tape fest. Yeah, oh, he, go, he even goes into accusing the doctor of forging a sick note for Win. <laughs>
0: oh, yeah, that was interesting. That was one of those, like, you would never hear in post-Benoit, you would never hear anything like that on WWE television these days. Like, yeah, saying no matter what, you could get a doctor to forge a prescription. <laughs> that, was,
2: that
0: made me sit up in my chair.
2: Um, Robert, any thoughts about the Jesse, uh, Jim Ross commentary on this, uh, some of those interactions there? I think
3: I've gone over, I've posted this before, but my thought on, on Jim Ross is he's somebody that if he doesn't want to be there with you, you have to drag a conversation out of him. Yeah. And my feeling has always been with commentary. The best kind of commentary is a conversation. Um, I'm not a huge fan of direct play-by-play because wrestling's a visual medium. And so not a lot of blind people, I imagine, like wrestling because it's just not what would you get into. So I don't need to hear every move called. So I like a conversation going between the announced team. And JR can do really good conversations later on with Lawler, with Michael Hayes, with Jim Cornette. But you put him with somebody he doesn't want to be there with, like Jesse or Bobby Heenan in the WWF. in a couple of Coliseum videos I was watching last weekend. And you can ask him a direct question like, what do you think of that, Jim Ross? And the next response will be, full-arm dragon twist, and yada, yada, yada. And, you know, it's, it's, I don't know. It just, it got better, I felt. I felt that Super Brawl, they were even worse, where it's just like, if I were Jesse, I honestly would have pulled off Jim Ross's headset during a break and said, are you going to talk to me or not? Well, I just thought... You I wouldn't have put just, up with that. so Jesse's could. probably thinking, hell, I'll collect the money, who cares? Completely. You know, it just... It really annoys me that I get where Jim Ross is coming from because his point of view is Jesse's making probably five times what I'm making. He doesn't know the fan base. He doesn't know the product. But those aren't Jim Ross's decisions to make. And the way he reacts to it, in my opinion, on air is to the detriment of the product. That's really unprofessional. And for a guy who's constantly called the greatest wrestling announcer of all time and such a consummate professional, I hate to say this. This is controversial, but I think at times he's kind of a whining baby.
2: But, I mean, not only that, he's just rude. On a basic human level, it's just rude. If if Jesse Ventura asks you, why is he called Pee Wee Anderson? Answer it. Answer the man. <laughs> I don't understand why you can't just deign him with an answer, for God's sake. Um, I mean, for me, I think this is a major, like, you know, if anybody wants to say Jim Ross is the best commentator of all time, why can't he commentate with the best colour guy of all time? I mean, clearly Jesse can commentate with anyone. And... He's openly just being a dick to him. Um, We've seen him do it before as well. I mean, uh, Chad, how many times have we seen Jim Ross uh, on these shows get into a bad mood and, like, bury matches in the middle of the cards and things? I actually did, did, like, uh, I've come to think that he's just a bit of a dick. (laughs) Like, like, I don't like him. (laughs) And I think it comes through on his podcast as well.
0: (laughs) uh, We got a thread that says what, he's a nasty, vile human or whatever on our on PWO. <laughs> I don't um, go that
3: far, just to be clear. <laughs>
0: yeah, um, uh, I, I mean, I think we're all certainly to Robert's point. When he's game, he can be one of the best announcers ever right in the conversation. If he is annoyed by you as he was with Jesse and didn't want to work with him and thought up staged by him, then his performance reflects that. if he's uninspired by the action going on sometimes his performance reflects that.
2: so well, in my greatest commentator in my greatest commentator ever put ballads, I would put Dick Graham above Jim Ross at this point. Oh, come on.
3: I I, I really (laughs) just just got a complete tangent. I wish there was a show where Cal Rudman and Bobby Heed and Drunk did a a show
2: together. Oh, it would be amazing, (laughs) wouldn't it? Um, Oh, man. Well, I mean, Dick Graham never gets in a bad mood. So, you know.
0: Yeah, but I I still say in this pairing, Jesse has to shoulder.
2: i mean i don't think he... no, hold on chad i've lost audio here Wait, can you repeat that
0: i'm sorry I, I just think for this it's neither one of them's greatest moments
2: okay i still don't see what the big crime in asking about Wee anderson is, is here anyway why don't you break this down chad
0: um so this match had a lot of of good in it but it was way too long it's 30 minutes long i thought dustin was really good in the match he uh, gave a very spirited uh, hot tag once Wyndham was worked over he gives the double bionic elbow to uh, williams and austin then sends a man with a lariat and then they start working over dustin and i thought that was effective um i, I didn't think the Austin Windom, I mean the Austin Williams side showed enough desperation uh, in the closing moments of the match. I thought that was a little odd, and I didn't kind of get that. But I mean, overall, it's it's a match that I can see some people being divided on and thinking it was too long. Long and it was really good because I thought most of the work within the match was good. It was just kind of destined to fail like going 30 minutes so i i kind of split the difference i ended up going three and a half i liked it a bit but i thought if they have condensed it to 20 minutes i would have really thought this was a great tag match and instead i just think it's very good but also bloated
2: robert yeah i
3: with this match a lot of a lot of my uh Prejudices as far as booking come out, as far as the problem. I think as a, as a piece of work, the wrestlers put in a lot of work. Um, I'm not usually a big Steve Williams fan. I liked him a lot in this. I'm not quite as high on Dustin Rhodes as a lot of people on PWR, but I loved him in this. I thought he did a great job selling, and the little bit of comeback he made showed real fire. But I do have a problem with the structure, which is, you know, there's three minutes left in a 30-minute draw, and you're expecting the hot tag and a massive babyface comeback, and you never get it. And instead, you get, you know, the the double faults finish, and then the announcement of a time limit draw in a match where the babyfaces are the champions, they're not even facing the original heel tag team, they're facing a makeshift team that they never had any interactions with again, and they're teasing a breakup of Wyndham and Rhodes that, beforehand, that never really seems to play any huge role in the finish or is part of the narrative so it's what the workers are giving the wrestlers are giving their best work but at some point they're not getting the support in booking and in thinking about how to make something interesting and really come alive to a crowd that although the crowd is into the the false finish i'll give bill watts that i also think you guys would obviously know this since you've done podcasts on them Isn't this like the third out of four shows in a row Bill Rotts has had a 30-minute tag team draw? (laughs) Am I wrong about that? No, it sounds about right. I mean, it's like at some point it's like, okay, it's no longer unpredictable if you do it every time. That's the definition of predictable. And it just seems like this was a case where, you know, in the opener I would have definitely had the the heels go over. I don't see any reason why unless you're going to break them up. Wyndham and Rhodes, don't go over here. I just didn't get the point of that, other than to maybe you knew how bad the next match was and you wanted to bring that crowd down a bit with the finish.
2: Right. I actually think it's a cost-cutting measure, the 30-minute draw. Because if you remember, um, and you'll remember this, Chad, all the 91 shows are horrendously overbooked. Like, there's like Do you remember those cards which had like 15, 16, 3-minute yeah, matches? And- tons of matches. And don't forget, all of those guys need to get paid. And they all get a payday every time they work. So by cutting it down and just, you know, having like six or seven matches on a car, one of them going long, you don't have to pay a whole bunch of guys. So, yeah. I mean, I've even heard about promoters who didn't like... You hear like Mike LaBelle didn't like uh, having tag matches because he'd, he'd have to pay four guys instead of just two. So, like, that's what it's, in like the really bad days of LA he used to book matches to go like 45 minutes like 2 45 minute matches to fill up the TV so then he's just paying four guys over 2 hours so and I, so i i actually think that the, the the you know the abundance of these 30 minute draws is him thinking about the bottom line yet again um but yeah i mean i i kind of really like this match um i i'm probably going to be the high boat here um it's one that i feel that you know, nobody really talks about it um, all four guys put in some great work um, I I mean I liked uh, Doc opening up Dustin with the rabbit punches we got a little bit of blood uh, which is a bit surprising um, I thought the open exchanges between Doc and Dustin were really fun I liked the stuff between Wyndham and Doc Austin looked pretty crisp here he had a nice suplex on Wyndham at one point I mean really solid old school match it was what it was probably the wrong match for this idiot fitty crowd like completely the wrong match f- for this setting um but if you consider the fact that gordy had quit in the morning it's one of those times where i'd give them credit you know it's, it's like i always think of that survivor series match where Heen and subs for tully like an all like all you know the heel team of just total pros that night i just think this is four pros making the best out of a bad situation i mean who knows what the plan was. Maybe Doc and Gordy were gonna go over before he quit. Like maybe they had to change a bucket on the fly. So you know, for what it was, I I really enjoyed it. I gave it four stars. I thought it was one of the best matches we've seen in a while, Chad. So probably the best match since Beach Blast that I can remember. So oh, yeah. more Vaders eh? Oh yeah, Vader stem, yeah. Apart from that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. It, probably the best Doc has Looked, maybe, I would say, in any of the... Ironically, once Scotty is left. You don't agree with
0: him? Maybe, I mean, I am he pretty good in that finer's matches, but I mean, he looked fine here too, so... Either one.
2: Uh, Alright, well, why don't we move on, because Vader is with race now, and in another complex situation, Paul Heyman is out. And he cuts a absolutely nuts promo on Medusa here. Uh, goes on the kick, I am a man, I am your superior, I am the brains of this outfit, you're just a woman. Uh, so we've got a bit of a misogy- misogyny angle going on. And then Heyman, Dane Pauly, goes completely over the top with his promo, completely nuts. And then Medusa kicks his ass, which was awesome. What did you make of this uh, little... Uh, I have no memory of this angle at all. But what did you make of it, Robert?
3: Um, ugh, honestly, uh, I, I hate to sound like a pessimist because I think Heyman did the material he was given, and I'm assuming he was given the basic bullet points of what he was supposed to do, really well. And he comes across like an absolute, miserable, smarky, delusional fool who's about to get his head handed to him, and then he gets his head handed to him, and that's great. And it turns Medusa face for about five minutes, we'll get into that later, um, really well. And that works. But the writing of it, like, the, and I, I don't know if Heyman wrote, I would assume Heyman just wrote his own promo, but the style of it, you know, I'm better because I'm a man and you're a woman, woman, and over and over, it just struck me as something out of like the fistic- sophistication level of Masters of the Universe. <laughs> yes. You know, it was like, who was this written by? Like a six-year-old kid who was told, you know, girls are bad, write that. Oh, okay. It just struck me as very, like, I don't know, just dated also for 1992. And I guess that's kind of the point, is Heyman is like this dinosaur in his thinking who's really outdated and is going to get his head handed to him as a result. And okay, you know, but... I, I, Did this ever go anywhere? Because I know there was a... Correct me if I'm wrong, isn't the the real, quote-unquote, real main event of Great American Bash 91 is Heyman with a partner versus Missy with a partner? Right. And then, so that went somewhere. Did this go somewhere to a match or anything? If if so, I can't remember.
0: Yeah, they do uh, wrestle, I think, at the next
2: clash. Okay, all right. Mm Ooh, Paulie and Medusa have a match? (laughs) Yeah.
3: Is, yeah. is, does he have a hand tied behind
0: his back? I don't believe he does, and eh, he may have it in that one. Yeah, I'd have to I'd have to see. I can't recall, but it, that seems right. I seem to recall that. Uh, I,
2: I thought it was quite satisfying when Medusa used like beat him up. That was quite. Yeah, satisfying. got a big pop. Yeah, she looked good doing it. I mean, there you go. the 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 original. Uh, the original wrestling feminist there, Medusa. But yeah, but I mean I I do get your point a little bit, Right, I I I often find it a little bit annoying when heels have to go into this gear sometimes. Like sometimes Healens put into situations when he when he has to like you know, it just so happens he's also a racist and also a sexist type thing. It's a bit irritating, do you know what I mean? Like yep. I, I don't really believe that Paul Lee would have these views, like the Paul Lee character. Do you know what I mean? Like, just doesn't seem like this f- goes with his, you know, he's meant to be a yuppie. I don't think a yuppie would have these views. Yeah, like, that's
3: an interesting point. You're, you're, you're certainly right. Never really yeah. thought of it that way. That's true. I wonder who, uh, who Polly's first choice for the Medusa role for Rude's, uh, when he says you were you were only, uh, was the line something like, you were only called up because the first prostitute I called wasn't available that day?
2: Yeah, that's what he says. Something like, who is that? A it, dig hat. Missy, I want to say probably, <laughs> point pointing back to his previous feuds. Um. Anyway, it's time to spin the wheel, make the deal now, and of course, it's going to be a coal coal miners glove match. Was there any other doubt? Um, and we, I guess, we talked about that the uh, earlier. Yeah, th-
0: the other thing though is this is an hour and forty-five minutes into the pay-per-view. So you don't know what the stipulation is till the show's over, half over.
2: Yeah, I mean, if they like, if they'd done it, maybe the night before or at the right, at the top of the show, maybe that would have kind of given time for you to get over the disappointment that it's going to be a coal miners glove match. Um, or they could have even built up the idea of the coal miners glove match before the match, like you know, actually a coal miners glove is really hard, or something like this. <laughs> Anyway, um, we have Guy Capetta now, who announces um, Sakaguchi, who uh, was a decent wrestler back in the early seventies. Um, you can see him in action against uh, Dory and uh, Dick, Dick Murdoch in one match. Have you seen that match, Jed? De- decent little yeah, match. Yeah, that's a good one. Yes, yeah, looks
0: like forty
2: minutes. Yeah. right. One of Dory's greatest hits, and then um, there's some '92 like, Olympian dude. So, uh, oh, come on, Parv. <laughs> Why well, you? T- don't know Nakanishi? Tell me about him. You're going to tell me about him. Go on.
0: Well, he's one of the worst wrestlers currently wrestling, um, probably in my top five. He's still active on uh, part of the card stuff. I mean, he was a guy that main evented a lot in the uh, in the mid 2000s. But he um, also will be making a return to WCW in 1997.
2: Right, so we'll see him again as a pro this time, I guess.
0: Yeah, as, uh, as, as Kurosawa.
2: Well, um, we see another Japanese chap in action now, uh, Chono, and he's taking on Rick Rude. Now, before we get into this, I absolutely hate Rick Rude without the mustache. It sucks so hard that he shaved it off. I mean, when I first saw him as a kid without the moustache, I was absolutely distraught. Um, I just just hate the. Idea. I mean, it's just it's not the same, is it? He needs the moustache. and, and he, the mystique is gone. It's it's just sorrow, and I I actually think that Rude in general now that he's lost the moustache is not is just not the same as a wrestler. Does he have any good non-moustache matches? No, is the answer. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you when know, like, we well, I mean, were going to see this.
0: <laughs> so, so you're blaming the moustache for his work rate? I want to make that
3: clear. He's the modern version of Samson. He is. Yeah. Except instead of strength, work rate.
0: I mean, imagine how. It's kind of weird because when he cut his hair, he got he was a better worker. <laughs> like rude
2: was. Imagine Anna and Listen turned up like clean shaven one day. It's just hideous. I don't even want to contemplate it. You so... look
0: much older. Like like uh, Flair with the ponytail.
2: Ugh. Anyway. Tell me about... I remember hating this match years ago. Um, yeah. And I I wrote in my notes here after five minutes it hasn't been bad so far. So, Chad. All
0: right. so I... I kind of wanted to give this match a chance because they had such a good match at the G1 in 92. And I thought it might just be a situation of the crowd shit on it. And it just had an unfair reputation, but it's really not good. Um, They do some decent work around the arm, but then it becomes really chin lock heavy and just drags and never seems to escalate. So this is kind of one of the more shocking I guess revelations of a matches that I've ever seen because rude from Halloween Havoc 1991 to this point was at least uh, one of the best wrestlers in the world, if not the best. And this is a pretty big thud to kind of end his uh, climactic year. I don't, I don't I I kind of was so in shock. I didn't even rank this match,
2: but just, just 98 percent
0: got negative thoughts,
2: 98% to do with the mustache. But I, before before I get over to, to Robert here, Chono Chad, I cannot get a handle on him as a worker. Never have been able to. Can't figure him out. Like, he's a guy you can have a five-star match one day and then turn a match like this in the next day. He's the same in Japan. Like, I, he's rubbish.
0: Oh, yeah.
2: What's the he's deal with very
0: Chono? Very inconsistent.
2: What's his deal? I don't get him at all
0: just think he's very inconsistent, and I don't know. I, don't, I really don't get it either, but...
2: I, I don't I don't even he get why he, why he was a top guy, really. He's got nothing. It should have been Hassey. This should have been Hassey right here. <laughs> anyway, but, uh, Robert, carry on. What did you make of this?
3: Well, let me put this match into perspective. So, after I watched it um, last night, that's where I stopped last night's most recent viewing of this. And this morning... I, uh, I watched something that somebody had randomly given me, which was a single match that I just thought was bizarre, which was um, uh, Billy Kidman and Tori Wilson against John Cena and Don Murray. And I was just baffled originally by the idea of John Cena stooging out for Billy Kidman. So I watched it. That match wiped the taste of this thing out of my mouth. <laughs> so when you're outperformed by Tori Wilson and Don Murray, that's not good. Um, I venture to say I think this is one of the worst matches with good workers who are roughly in their prime I've ever seen, if, if not in the top five or bottom five. Wow. Um, I think fundamentally, whoever, I would have fired Bill Watts for this if I'd been Ted Turner, in all honesty, because the idea is to have, we're going to have a heel wrestle a Japanese worker in Philly, who's, by the way, also going to wrestle as a heel. We're going to have it go 25 minutes and mostly be rest holds. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I hate to sound smarky and like I'm, you know, dumping on something, but there's no excuse for that as a game plan. And I've heard, um, cause I actually looked up like, why is this match so bad that both guys were hurt? Um, that that's the explanation that, uh, both guys were relatively injured. And if that's the case, I think there's a pretty logical way to book out. You have, you have, um, Shono come out, announce he's hurt, can't defend the title, So he's going to get a substitute, just like Rude did earlier. And the substitute is Vader, to make it more amusing, who then proceeds to kick Rick Rude's, you know, rear end, which is what I would have done, just because it would have made me, at least that would have been entertaining. Um, I don't know if Chono had ever worked to a U.S. crowd and knew I've got to work that style or just wasn't willing to do it or didn't know how to do it. And Rude, for whatever reason, wasn't willing to work face because he didn't for much of his career, other than beginning in, you know, as a job guy. But this is terrible. Um, the botched double axe handle, which is what I think they were going for, doesn't help. But it's just, I, I can't say enough. I, I don't give negative stars uh, for reviews. I give this zero stars.
2: Well, Malta gave it minus three stars, and <laughs> he makes it
3: more than I do. <laughs>
2: And calls it truly a disaster in every way, one of the worst world title (laughs) matches ever on pay-per-view, which is a pretty damning, pretty damning review from Meltzer. Um, I remember the old Scott Keith line on this, and again, it's Scott Keith, so he probably made it up, was that Bill Watts had deliberately told Chono to lay an egg here because he didn't want Japanese guys getting over for the American. So that's why the match in Japan was good and this match was poor. Because they were told to lay and rest holds. Meltzer's explanation is that both guys were injured. Okay. So, you know, there it is. Um. Yes. Uh. I mean, I I don't have much uh else to add. I mean, it it wasn't quite as bad as I remembered it. Um. You know, I was I, I went in with it through the. You know, I I thought that they broke the hold up once in a while. Threw a couple of stomps in and things, um, you know. It, it wasn't like I've seen worse Rick Rude matches. Um, for example, Rick Rude versus Jake Roberts at WrestleMania Four. I watched this over that match. Right. Uh, have you seen that one, Robert?
3: No, I have. Um, WrestleMania IV is probably my most watched pay-per-view just because when I was little, we had a Betamax VCR. My parents were not good at buying technology. They bought a Betamax and an Atari in 1987. Anyway, uh, and uh, this tape you could rent as one tape. So my logic as a kid was, well, this is four hours of wrestling. Everything else is two or three. This is I'm getting the most for my dollar. So I rented WrestleMania IV a ton. Um, Jake versus Root is not any good but I like it more than this because it's shorter and at least it has gorilla and Jesse who are a better commentary team in my opinion than Jr. and Jesse.
2: Yeah, they kind of went to sleep during this one as well, didn't they? Um, anyway, uh, let's move on from that. It's not a very good match. Chinlock city. Um, because now we get cactus Jack breaking concrete blocks over the barbarians back, uh, in something that actually happened with the sledgehammer. So there, there we go. Um, and now, uh, it is the Barbarian taking on Ron Simmons for the world title. So, uh, Chad, can you break this one down?
0: Yeah, this was a, uh, you know, WCW Pro main event that was on a pay-per-view for the world title. That's kind of what I thought. I thought uh, Barbarian's a gatekeeper contender, and he did, he just didn't belong here. And as we discussed, par Simmons struggles being the world champion having that persona and aura with him so I mean they have a perfectly okay big power man match but was not inspiring it was a decent defense for Simmons and it seemed like a pretty disinteresting feud overall I mean it was a very nondescript match I mean I went two and a half it was what it was
2: melts again in
0: it. my in my mind and out.
2: But Meltzer gave it a quarter of a star. I have to say say that I I enjoyed the match itself a good bit. I mean, the booking of the title is very poor. You know, you you get the burial of the world. You know, I just think this buries the world title for me. Barbarian's clearly a mid-card act. Um, Just not a big enough threat to be credible. Fans knew him at this point as basically just making up... Like, they'd already seen him, like, be making up, like the numbers on Rick Martel Survivor Series team or like he was in the million dollar team that once he's a henchman. He's a goon. He's not a main event world title contender, you know, in the eyes of the average fan. I mean, Robert, you could, you, you were a kid at this point. Can you, can you remember how you thought of barbarian in 1992?
3: I would have laughed my head off if somebody had told me, I mean, he was other than Haku. He was pretty much the lowest heel who was a name on the W.F. side?
2: Yeah, he's just a uh, just just a goon, like yeah. You know.
3: No, he's you know, and he's got a lot of love on P.W.O. and I think uh, we've we've ragged on Scott Keith a, a bit, deservedly so. And I'll give Scott Keith credit for something he said about the Barbarian once that I remember thinking that's true. He's a guy who has all the tools to be a star, but didn't know how to put together a match. And. I think that's just, and and Simmons is not a guy who can carry anyone, in in my estimation. Um, so you get, I think Chad had the best line. He's absolutely right at WCW Pro Main Event. Um, I don't, I don't buy at any point the titles in any jeopardy, but I also don't buy that I should care, um, and that's a problem. There are a couple of things I noticed on commentary, the uh, the discussion of the Shinonomaki no Did you pick that up?
2: Yes, I did, yeah.
3: And how JR makes a little WBF dig on that one.
2: What is the deal on that, yeah?
3: Well, he says to him, so he's got him in what is essentially supposed to be a Cobra Clutch, although it's very bizarre because the way Barbarian has it, it's almost like he's trying to make the chest submit and not knock him out early on, and then he adjusts it up. And he says to him at some point, Shinodamaki and Jesse's like, what do you call that? And, And JR's response back is something like, well, you worked at a place where they didn't use those kind of names or holds.
2: Oh, yeah, I remember. And it's a
3: little aft dig thrown in that, you know, okay, fine, whatever. And and it, it would be appropriate if not for the fact that two of their biggest stars ever actually used that as their finisher. So, oops. <laughs> but <laughs> minor detail. Um, I did find it a little silly, too, that, like, okay, so I watched some of the training videos. I don't know why. And they showed that Cactus Jack's whole strategy was to make the Barbarian take lots of slams so he'd be ready for the Power Slam. Ron Simmons makes no real comeback other than hitting a Power Slam out of nowhere and that finishes the Barbarian. So I guess Cactus Jack wasn't training him too effectively. Um, this, was, this was to me about a one-and-a-half-star match. It was, if it had been, a like Chad said, a main event on WCW Pro, great world title match on a pay-per-view especially following what it just followed. I mean, oof. And I don't again not to knock on Bill Watts, but I just don't think the Ron Simmons thing was ever the right decision and if he couldn't see it here, he can't see it.
2: But, but my issue is that if you're going to make this match, you have to make it the main event. If you're going to if you're going to book a mid-cardy guy And once Simmons is kind of a mid-cardy champion, you have to put the match on last and make it seem like the main event. Putting it here just buries everybody. I mean, Simmons had no chance if you're going to treat him like this. That's what I think.
3: Honestly, I think a good portion of the audience would have walked after Sting Jake.
2: That's that's also a good point. Um, Yeah, that is a very good point, actually. Uh, In which case why didn't you make Sting the champion? I mean, I just don't see the point in the Ron Simmons title run. Um, I, I mean... I, don't well, know, I, not- think,
0: I mean, I think you got the sense here that they were looking to get it off of it. I mean, this is... Yeah.
2: Um, Meltzer calls it one of the worst world title matches ever on pay-per-view.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Another one? Yes. That sounds familiar! <laughs>
2: um, anyway next up is uh the interview with uh bruno eric watts and ron simmons with the idea that eric watts would get a rub from standing alongside wrestling the wrestling legends at bruno and the current world champion uh melter says this eric watts push is out of control so uh, any thoughts on our initial look at watts here eric watts
0: yeah, i mean didn't deserve the spy we'll see that pretty quickly is what it is. Just shouldn't have been. Shouldn't have been in the position he was in.
2: Yeah, ne- nepotism at its worst here. Um, right.
3: Has anyone speaking of, of nepotism and bad wrestlers, and I haven't, so I'm curious. Have either of you ever been able to find any full um, George gulas matches?
2: No, I've never always seen any. No. Goulas.
3: Is there any footage at, like to see if he's as bad as everyone says, and he's, or if he's really. Pretty much on Eric Watts
2: level is what I was why I was comparing. I I think my, my personal view is you'll, you'll you'll come to find out over the next few shows is that Eric Watts is the worst of the, all of the of all of those guys by far the worst
0: Worse than uh, David Flair.
2: Mm, yeah, because at least David Flair took the beating. <laughs> <laughs>
3: yeah, and wasn't that I? will say this because I do remember that that angle wasn't the whole point of David Flair. In the angle, he couldn't wrestle? Like he was a complete idiot who had no clue what he was doing, couldn't wrestle, and anyone could 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 have beaten him, but the horseman kept interfering for him?
2: Something. It was something. So if
3: it's, the angle is you're a terrible wrestler, then I guess if you're a terrible wrestler, aren't you doing it right? That's kind of, a, I guess, it's a weird argument to make, but...
2: Yeah, well, he was trying to pay his dues, I guess. You know, he got the spot because of flair, but this is li- literally like, you know president abusing his power, putting Eric Watts in this position when clearly he wouldn't have got even close to being on TV otherwise, you know. Anyway, um, let's get to this main event, the Coal coal Miners glove match, Sting versus Jake Roberts. Um, eh, Anything to say about this match, Chad?
0: No, I mean... Jake's fat, they work over his shoulder, he gets bit by a snake, <laughs> looks ridiculous, he hobbles to the back, it's, it's another, it's a 12, 10, 11 minute match that felt anti-climatic, there was no really struggle for the glove, the glove didn't play a huge role except right at the very end. Uh, just a bad, bad match to end the night. I I thought this was probably the second worst match of the show, actually. So, I didn't like this match at all.
2: Robert, any any thoughts?
3: Yeah. Um. So, is it me or do we live in a very surreal world where the first guy to book a thing on a pole match in WCW was not Vince Russo, but Bill Watts? <laughs> Yeah. just seems like such a—you know, the thing I thought about this, because this is the first time I've seen a Coal Miner's glove match. I don't know if I've ever seen another one or would. It's basically got all the negatives of a Cajun ladder and none of the positives. Um, I think—I'll I'll try to say a few positive things. Uh, Jake's selling of the shoulder is logical, the, the way he can't recover after the belly-to-back suplex. Um, so it has Jake's usual logical selling. And it has the crowd into it at times because, you know, they're, oh, will he get to the pole or won't he is something that it reminds me a little bit of that, um, the blindfold match at WrestleMania seven. And that it's, it's doesn't require work rate or or even any effort to get the crowd into it. I did notice, uh, I don't know if you caught this Stig takes Jake's DDT really odd. He, He doesn't take it like everyone takes Jake's DDT. He takes it like everyone takes everyone else's DDTs. I thought that was strange. Um, the finish just seems like something that if you suggested to Bill Watts, he would punch you in the face. Yeah,
2: it's it's appalling. I mean the the the, <laughs> the, the snake bite is so bad, um, and we even got a trademark uh, JR. Bar God, you know you know is we got that <laughs> bloody you know you or JR. Busted out the, the 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 my God, he's you know. T- Bloody awful. This, the dud. One of the worst matches we've seen this history.
0: Uh, You're quoting Meltzer. One of the worst main events.
2: Yeah, I mean, he said.
1: (laughs) the consistency of the end of this. The the
2: finish made a bad main event even worse, says Meltzer. A quarter of a star he went. So, you know.
0: I mean, that finish was. You, I mean, Jake at Heroes of Wrestling's embarrassing, but this was pretty embarrassing.
2: I mean, it was bad. Apparently, the snake did actually bite his cheek as well, which wasn't meant to happen, oh, and my uh, God. He, he started bleeding. Um, and um, <laughs>
0: so they did get a first blood match, even yeah. though they couldn't do anything with blood.
2: <laughs> yeah. Um. So Roberts ran. We while well, we heard all about anti venom backstage. I mean, that that's probably one of the worst finishes to a. Jake is just terrible here. I mean, I, I did like his back suplex, I have to say, but this was a rubbish match. And I, I just think, like, if Jake is meant to be so good at psychology, what what is this match about? Why wasn't it better? Why didn't they work the stip in? Like, I, I've seen Chavo Guerrero in stuff on a... like a Mexican hat on a pole match, which wasn't that bad, <laughs> I want to say. So... It can be done as a step. Anyway, let's uh, let's get to the end of show awards and um, I've, there's a lot of contenders for the Billy Graham Award tonight. But let's uh, what's the match of the night? I, I, there's a clear favorite for me here. Chad.
0: Yeah, hey, I, I, I know which one you're going with. I'm actually going to go with another one and say uh, Ricky Steamboat versus
2: Brian Pillman. Okay, Robert.
3: Yeah, I gotta, I gotta be the second vote on that one. I would go Steamboat Pillman by a hair.
2: Well, I, I, I'm clearly giving it to Doc and Austin versus Wyndham and Rhodes. I just thought yeah. that was a yeah good solid match. And if you took it out of context and just kind of stuck it up on a YouTube or whatever, I think it would look better outside of the stink at the end of this card. Um, okay. So MVP, Chad.
0: Uh well MVP uh, broken record I'm going Ricky Steamboat I thought he was really good in that match kind of throwing in some new wrinkles I it's it's to me it's between him and Dustin that was my two choices and I'll go Steamboat
2: Steamer yeah okay I'm I'm actually interested like i clearly Flair's got way more MVPs than anyone else on the show but I reckon Steamboat might be in the running he may have overtaken Tully at this point as the as the second. MVP.
0: Uh, what about Arn? I feel like Arn's. Well, not a it's yeah,
2: Arn had a good run where he didn't get any because Flair was on the shows. So, I might, I might, t- I might do those stats one day. I need something to do. Yep, on GW. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Robert, who, who's your MVP?
3: You know, I'll, I'll go. I hate to sound like a broken record. I'm going to go with Chad with this one again. I think Steamboat uh, brought a little more to that match with Pillman. Steamboat. I especially liked it. I mentioned this when I mentioned the match, but that Steamboat does adapt to a more power-based strategy because he's fighting a smaller guy, and Jesse picks up on it and adds it to his commentary, which is a nice piece of I mean, They've worked together, obviously, as wrestler and announcer for many years, but it's a nice piece of of logic. So I'll, I'll give it to Steve Boat, but I would say Dustin's a very strong candidate, too.
2: We didn't mention him, but I reckon an MVP contender is Kenzuki Sensaki. He was the most over guy on the entire show. He picked up Harley Race and suplexed him. Yes! <laughs> We forgot about that, didn't we? We were just so depressed about the match. Yeah, i we was so <laughs>
0: disgusted with the match that he does actually get a pretty nice pop. When most he runs most over
2: him. Japanese guy in the history of US wrestling, apart from maybe Togi at some point in nineteen ninety nine. Or whenever it right. was. Um okay. So what else? Um Oh yeah, no oh yeah, sorry, my MVP. I'm gonna go with oh, yeah. uh I think I'll go with Dustin.
0: Yeah.
2: In that match. I just saw you do really good uh in portions, uh, selling and and on offense. Um, so now, Billy Graham Award winner. Basically, everybody else on the entire show, um, apart from the guys in that opener. And <laughs> in, in fact, there are several. Johnny Gun could well be in the contention. <laughs> Shadow is the Billy Graham Award winner for this show. I
0: mean. Is it unfair to give it to Watts? Because I, I feel like I'm going to give it to him. I, and and he was enough on screen and ineffective in that convoluted explanation that I don't feel as bad. Because, see, on screen, he wasn't great in the booking. I mean, this show, I think the first four matches are okay. I mean, the Nikita, Vader stuff in the opener weren't anything special but served a purpose. But the last three matches on this show are... So I, I, That is a bad three-match stretch of wrestling. I don't think of any show we've done, Part we've encountered three main event matches that were that bad. I mean, we've encountered a bunch of crap, usually in the middle, with, like, eyes and ding-dongs and, you know, mess like that. But just the last hour and 15 minutes of this show was a big chore to get through. Uh,
2: This is what Meltzer says. Halloween Havoc wasn't the worst pay-per-view in history, although it was among the worst. The WWF put on shows that were terrible from start to finish. Two of them were WrestleManias. This show was only terrible from the middle point of the show to the finish. The first half was good, particularly when it came to wrestling action. Um, So WCW put on a card, Great American Bash 91. Is this worse than any of them? I guess that's a true question to ask at this point. Is this the worst show we've watched, Chad, in your view?
0: I mean, I think some of those clashes are worse Or worse, but uh, I mean, I, I may like Green American Bash, I don't know. Green American Bash 91 I think is probably worse too. This is I mean, this one's in the conversation. Again, it's 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 cuz I did think there was two really good matches, so it's kind of weird, but Man, the last three matches are so bad. It's like,
2: ugh. But Bunko Stampede, Stampede 88 is pretty egregiously Yeah, pitch, that one's bad. Yeah,
0: That's that like the so height of, like, matches, like
2: dusty, crappy, dusty book era booking. Um, uh, Robert, do you think this is the worst WDCW show up until this point?
3: Um. Uh, no, because... No, because the two you named I think are worse because the first half of this show, or maybe it's actually closer to the first 40% or something like that, is fine and has some good watchable stuff. It was building, and then the finish of the tag match, which I don't particularly care for, sort of sucks it out, and then from that moment on it just descends. But certainly it's in – it's certainly in contention for – yeah, it's definitely the worst show of the year by a mile for WCW – And uh, I can't, I mean, I get what he's, I think I know what WrestleMania he's talking about. I'd probably rather watch them than this. So this is not, uh, this is not good by any means.
2: Chad, who is it really great? You can't pick the Booker. When, when, did did you? Why not? He
3: was on the show.
0: Did you pick Oli
2: Anderson during the Black Scorpion nonsense? I don't
0: know. I mean, okay, I'll I'll pick, uh, I'll pick Kono. I mean, I mean, he's
2: Ch- fine. All right.
0: I thought he was very tone deaf, and his performance didn't show any fire and
2: uh, no character at all.
0: Yeah, I mean, he he gave a dud performance.
2: So yeah. I, I actually hate. Ch- I decided I hate Chona I've never seen him. He's, <laughs> like, <he's>, like, <laughs> like 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 even in his five star matches, he's crap. Like it, it, he's got that really good match against Hasey that, that I that I enjoy.
1: Yeah,
2: uh, it's all Hasey. Like, he might as well just be a, you know, blow-up doll, you know. Um, uh, Robert, who is your Billy Graham? You know, this
1: is
3: three for three, so I give it to Chodo. Um, I just... You guys would know this, you know, far more about Japanese wrestling than I do. Is this one of the first times he ever worked to a U.S. crowd? Yeah, pretty much.
2: Yeah, they haven't sent him before, have they, on those WCW...
3: So in that case, I'm almost willing to get him off based on the fact that maybe nobody had the conversation of how you work in the U.S., although I I can't think why they wouldn't at least think that through. Um, But this is bad, and Chono, definitely the worst. It's odd. We have the same favorite match, best, worst. and I believe, Chad, correct me if I'm wrong, I've heard this somewhere, so if this is not true, one of your favorite matches ever is my favorite match of all time, which is uh, Warrior Savage at WrestleMania 7.
0: Yeah, that is uh, certainly on my uh, desert island list.
3: Yeah. So oddly enough, we come from different parts of the country. We're a few years apart in age, grew up watching different stuff. But yeah, no, that's the Chono definitely for me. I mean, I would give it to Bill Watts if I could just because I've always felt hard criticizing wrestlers because I can't do it. Whereas I think anybody could book if you can think it through. And so it's easier to criticize that, and maybe be more justified. But no, Chono worked like he wanted to make a bad situation
2: worse. Well, my Billy Graham Award winner is Jake Roberts. I mean, he was fucking abysmal. I, 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 he was embarrassing. And like, when, when did uh, Jake leave? Because um, he wasn't that bad. He wasn't bad when he left WWF. But in the God, like, in the time since we last saw Jake, what's happened to him?
3: Well, this whole run, correct, uh, yeah, I'm not sure I'm right about this. This whole run is less than, like, what, half a dozen matches as far as TV?
2: It, well, yeah. it's, not, it's, it's not long at all.
3: No, so, in and out. So it may have been, you know, no motivation to care, hadn't worked in seven months, and it obviously gotten horrifically out of shape. I mean, that's, you know, you just see it. And uh, that's the only thing I can think of, because, yeah, I mean... If Jake had any motivation to continue to make a lot of money and do well, he certainly would have put on that performance.
2: I mean, considering some of the crap we've seen, Chad, I, I honestly think that aside from maybe Hogan versus Bloody Beefcake in a couple of years, this that might <laughs> that might be the worst main event ever on a pay per view. It's just hideous. The Cobra Bite. It's just. It's like it's the sort of thing that um, territories would have closed down over, that. You know, you know, like when they—I mentioned LA earlier. They closed down when they brought in that what was it—the Frankenstein's monster, the mummy, or whatever it was. And, right,
0: right. And, and she can destroy. It, keep it, going to the well.
2: And that, I mean, you know, it was like Buddy Ed Wood directed it. Terrible. You, 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 you,
3: you. Hey, Ed Wood movies are at least entertaining.
2: Yeah. Anyway, it's been a long show, guys. Um, well, what are we doing next time, uh, Jan?
3: We'll
0: do a Clash of the Champions 21. That's the show I don't remember much of, but it does have Sting and Rude, so maybe they can redeem themselves a little bit here.
2: As much as I love 1992 WCW, this is a real downer of a show for me. I mean, it's Yeah, just, this
0: show takes it out of you, too. Just it just goes
2: down course. and down and down, and it's three hours long as well. Like I'm pretty right. sure when I watched it years ago, there was a Turner edit. So they they cut down some of the matches to be just like seven minutes instead of like 20. So, yeah, it's pretty, you know, when you watch a 30-minute draw already and then going from that into the race, Chono, it's just like, oh, Christ. So, yes, anyway, um, thank you very much, Robert, uh, for coming on. And we look forward to seeing what you do with the Memphis stuff, if that ever comes to fruition. (laughs)
3: <laughs> we've been waiting for uh johnny has been telling me wait until gwe wraps up um definitely is a great fun love to come back i have an, an odd show i'd love to do with you guys we might as well keep the tradition of this going and do uh the first wcw show i ever ordered on pay-per-view which uh will i'll leave on a laugh which was uncensored 96 right oh, that's well that's the one with hogan and savage Versus 45 guys in a cage. Just because as a, a 16-year-old, I went, they can't be serious. I need to see this to see what happens.
2: Well, fans, if you heard it here, Robert will be back on the show in the year 2021. <laughs> and we discuss on let me, set. Let me clear my calendar. Yeah. If SoundCloud hasn't blown up by then, which it probably will. <laughs> All right, guys. Until next time.
1: Fans, for
0: all of us here at WCW Center Stage, for Cowboy Bill Watts and the American Dream Dusty Rhodes, I'm Jim Ross saying night, everybody.